0: As millions of people watched the day after, we visited with one family in New Jersey tonight to get their reaction. Paul and Mary Pascali watched with their 11-year-old daughter, but they sent their five and eight-year-old children to bed because they knew the film was very, very powerful and probably too much for them.
1: It was completely devastating. It was a horrible thing to see the reality and how fast it could happen. Those of us who watch it in the viewing public not the ones who really should get the education from that film. It's more the people who have the authority to push the button. It really happened. I would just want. I would just want to go die with the blast and not have to live and start. You have to start all over again. I think I just feel a little stronger about the fact that we have to be strong. We still have to. We can't leave ourselves vulnerable.
0: All the De Pascales agreed that they'd remember the movie they saw together tonight for a long, long time.
2: I've always wondered, what was it like to be so aware and so afraid of nuclear Armageddon? In 1983, I was in the first grade at Lincoln Avenue Elementary School in Seville, New York. My priorities were trying to avoid getting the messiest desk award, and reading all of the vocabulary words in mystery sneaker so that my name was all the way up the chart on mrs hickman's bulletin board sure we had air raid drills but i didn't know what an air raid was just that when that siren sounded i had to get into the hallway and crouch against the wall in a very uncomfortable position my world was super friends in the morning and inspector gadget in the afternoon and yet kids older than me were becoming more aware that what the president referred to as the evil empire could strike us at any moment, and it would mean that we would all die. As the decade wore on, I would get to know some of the terms that so many others were familiar with. Fallout. Nuclear winter. Mutually assured destruction. Terms that were all on display that night in November when ABC aired the day after. This is Fallen Walls Open Curtains. So The Day After is easily one of the most well-known and important television movies of the 1980s, if not of all time, and this episode more or less marks my entrance into my lifetime, as I am going to start covering popular culture that was released when I was a kid, some of which I saw when it was first released. Later on in this episode, Michael Bailey is going to join me to talk about The Day After, as well as the nuclear apocalypse subgenre of the 1980s. But first I'm going to spend this episode of Fallen Walls Open Curtains, a podcast miniseries from pop culture affidavit and Two True Freaks, talking about the events of March, April, and May 1991. As always, I'm your host, Tom Panneries. Our history section has been one of revolution in the Eastern Bloc, and now it begins to turn to the Soviet Union itself, as well as the aftermaths of some of those revolutions. For example, I'm going to get a little into post-Cold War history with a look at the dissolution of Yugoslavia and the civil war that took place throughout the 1990s, which has its roots in the revolutions of 1989. So let's go ahead and get a look into that history. Here's what was happening during March, April, and May of 1991. On March 3rd, voters in Estonia and Latvia vote in favor of independence from the Soviet Union by a margin of 3 to 1, and this is the culmination of the singing revolution, which I detailed a few episodes ago. On March 9th, massive demonstrations are held against Slobodan Milosevic in Belgrade, I'm going to spend some time going into detail about that subject later in this section, so more on that later, except that I will right now mention that two people were killed in this demonstration. On March 15th, the occupying Allied powers of the United States, France, the United Kingdom, and the Soviet Union formally relinquished any rights they have to Germany, thus giving that country its full independence. On that same day, the U.S. and Albania formally reestablished diplomatic relations. The Soviet Union holds a referendum on keeping the country together on March 17, 1991, and while six of the republics do not participate, 71% of the voters are in favor of staying unified. I'll have more next episode on this road toward disillusion, especially the coup attempt that takes place in the summer of 1991. On March thirty-first, Albania holds its first multi-party elections since 1923 with the Party of Labor winning in a landslide. That same day, Georgia declares its independence from the Soviet Union. We have a growing Soviet economic crisis, which will certainly contribute to the country's disillusion. Around April 2nd, we see the government imposing price increases and the prices of a number of consumer goods double and triple. Mikhail Gorbachev would visit Japan from April 16th to the 18th, and this is the first time that a Soviet premier ever visited the country. The biggest issue of contention is the Kuril Islands. These are located between Hokkaido and Kamchatka. The Russians and the Soviets had disputed the islands for much of the 20th century, and they had been given to the USSR in 1945 in return for the Soviets' help during the end of the Pacific Theater in the Second World War. Japan had always maintained a claim to the fourth southernmost islands, and the dispute is ongoing. Gorbachev failed to rectify anything in 1991, and the Japanese and Russian governments are still in disagreement over who owns what. On April 19th, Soviet troops officially leave Poland, and on May 19th, Croatia leaves Yugoslavia, and that's a great way to segue into the longer part of this segment, which is a look at the history of Yugoslavia, especially its dissolution after the end of the Cold War. As a country, Yugoslavia has a very short history. It was founded after the First World War when the Austro-Hungarian Empire collapsed. Of course, what became Yugoslavia had a significant role in the start of that war as one of its most populous cities, Sarajevo, was the site of the assassination of Archduke Francis Ferdinand, the infamous match that lit the fire that was the international crisis of the summer of 1914 and that would evolve into what was then known as the Great War. Belgrade would be the official capital of Yugoslavia, and that country was a mishmash of the smaller territories of Serbia, Montenegro, the state of Slovenes, Croats, and Serbs, Fiume, and Austria-Hungary. Today, the former Yugoslav republics are Bosnia and Herzegovina, Croatia, Kosovo, Montenegro, North Macedonia, Serbia, and Slovenia. And the story of how we got to this is quite long. I'll start in 1941. This is when the Axis powers invade and wind up splitting up Yugoslavia along some of the ethnic lines that we see on today's map. Croatia is established as a Nazi satellite state ruled by a fascist militia that was ultimately responsible for the deaths of 500,000 people, the deportation of 250,000, and the forced conversion of another 200,000 to Catholicism. There would be two Yugoslavian resistance movements, the Chetniks and the Partisans. The Partisans would become the largest anti-Nazi resistance in Western and Central Europe, and they were led by Joseph Braz Tito. Tito would become the dictator of Yugoslavia after the war and rule it as an independent communist country. At first, the country was a Soviet ally, but then Tito split from Stalin over a number of issues, and while it was communist, Tito considered himself to be his own power outside of the Eastern Bloc. In 1963, he was elected president for life, and he would serve in that role until his death in 1980. Now, while Yugoslavia was not necessarily prosperous during the Cold War, Tito did keep things together even to the extent where his dictatorship was able to suppress ethnic strife that would foreshadow the country's disillusionment in the early 90s. But the 1970s would see Yugoslavia go through a severe recession and massive unemployment. Tito died in 1980, the country would then continue to suffer economically with the cracks that would split the nation into the countries we see today beginning to grow. Nationalism began to rise in the various parts of the country and the Serbian dictator Slobodan Milosevic would try to assert Serbian dominance over the country. And up until this point, I have been amazed at how relatively peaceful the end of the Cold War has been. Yes, there were violent uprisings in some Eastern European countries, such as Romania, but full-scale civil wars were not the norm. I imagine that this is because many of the newly formed countries were once Soviet satellites, so once Moscow could or would no longer support them, they had no ability to really fight. On the other hand, Yugoslavia's lack of a relationship with the Soviets under Tito, followed by the uneasiness of those in power after his death, meant that the stage was set, especially in a country that had been assembled despite ethnic differences. The civil war begins in August of 1990, and in the fall for that year, multi-party elections are held. Slovenia and Croatia make the recommendation to turn Yugoslavia into a loose confederation of six republics, each one essentially being self governing Milosevic rejected this. June of 1991, Slovenia and Croatia declare their independence, and a 10-day war broke out. The Yugoslav army pulls its army out of Slovenia without incident, but ethnic Serbs in Croatia rise up and begin a bloody civil war. Macedonia would secede rather smoothly in 1991, but Bosnia and Herzegovina would be another story. The violence in Bosnia that begins in 1991 leads to a fully armed war beginning in 1992 and ending in December of 95. This was essentially the first major post-Cold War armed conflict in Europe and would be would also see the first genocide on the continent since the Holocaust. In short, the country was attempting to gain its independence, and Serbia was fighting to prevent that. While the conflicts were political, they were also fought along ethnic lines, and Milosevic and Serbia were responsible for the aforementioned genocide, which was referred to at the time as ethnic cleansing. The perpetrators of this crime were Serbs and Croats, with the victims mostly being Bosniaks, especially Muslims with tens of thousands killed and 1 to 1.3 million people forcibly deported or resettled. In addition, 12,000 to 20,000 women were raped. It's a lot to get into that goes beyond the scope of this show. I also don't want to get into too graphic detail, but the methods used were similar to what we have learned about Nazi occupation and genocide. Bosniaks and Croats were evicted from their homes and sent to concentration camps. There were forced labor of prisoners, torture and detention centers, massacres in Sobrenica and other cities, destructions of mosques and other religious buildings, and the rape and assault of women as a means to, quote, convert them. The war, like I said, ended in 1995 with a stalemate that was brokered by NATO and the United Nations. Simultaneously, the Republic of Kosovo had declared independence and would fight in a similar war against Yugoslavia and and Serb forces, with ceasefire eventually being announced in 1999. Slobodan Milosevic would eventually be arrested for war crimes stemming from both of these wars, although he would die while awaiting trial in The Hague. A number of high-ranking Serb officials would be tried and sentenced as well. The echoes and impacts of this war were felt throughout the 90s, and while I have no personal ties to it, I vividly remember the Bosnia War occurring when I was in high school and the Kosovo War escalating to its ultimate conclusion when I was in college. In fact, I did a research project on the Bosnian War in my sophomore year, English. We were supposed to give a persuasive speech, and I decided to argue that we had an obligation as the United States for some sort of military intervention in Bosnia. Granted, I am sure that my speech, even though it was well-researched, did not have any real nuance to it, but I certainly was adamant that we were watching this unfold in the news and we're really not doing anything. It was and is a conundrum that the United States faces as far as its military is concerned, especially during the post-World War II era, when we did prop ourselves up as champions of democracy and what was quote-unquote good in the world. Of course that is what the PR and propaganda was about. And while we did have conflict both armed and unarmed against some terrible regimes, we were also not completely innocent in our support of others and did not and did interfere with the politics in other regions, Latin America being a uh, more blatant example. Still, when it came to Europe our our role always seemed a little clearer cut. Europe had more or less been the center of Western civilization for centuries and had been the role of two major wars of the 20th. Our role was to preserve what democracy and freedom we had propagated in the 1940s and to hold off the Soviet threat. That's why we had things such as the Marshall Plan. But with the Soviet threat gone, I made the point in my particular speech in 10th grade this was the situation where we still should intervene because of our moral obligation due to the image that we hold up.
0: I think I got an A.
2: I'm not sure. Later that year, this would have been 1993, by the way, my aunt was hosting a Bosniak exchange student. She was there at Christmas, and all I remember that was that she was extremely attractive. What? I was 16. She was also extremely quiet. I can't remember if she spoke English or not, and had I had more social graces. I may have tried to strike up a conversation. I don't know. I do know that things didn't work out. Apparently, according to my aunt, she stole stuff. I can't imagine it being an easy situation for anyone. Bosnia as a country and the entirety of the former Yugoslavia still deals with the effects of the war. And this is detailed in For the Love of Europe, a Comprehensive Travel Guide by Rick Steves. Bosnia-Herzegovina's three main ethnic groups, Serbs, Croats, and Bosniaks, are descended from the same ancestors and speak closely related languages. The key distinction is that they practice different religions. Orthodox Christianity, Serbs, Roman Catholicism, Croats, and Islam, Bosniaks. For the most part, there's no way that a casual visitor can determine the religion or loyalties of the people just by looking at them. Studying the complex demographics of the former Yugoslavia, I gain a grudging respect for the communist-era dictator Tito, the one man who was able to hold this, quote, union of the South Slavs together peacefully. Bosnia-Herzegovina is one nation historically divided into two regions, Bosnia and Herzegovina, But the 1995 Dayton Peace Accords gerrymandered the country along sectarian lines, giving a degree of autonomy to the area where Orthodox Serbs predominate. This Republika Spurska rings the core of Bosnia on three sides. When asked for driving tips, Croats, who because of the ongoing tensions with the Serbs avoid this territory, insist that the road I want to take through their country doesn't even exist." From the main Croatian coastal road just south of Dubrovnik, directional signs would send me to a tiny Croatian border town, but ignore the large Serbian city of Trebinja just beyond. And then there's a section called Mending Bridges in Mostar. The city of Mostar lies at a crossroads of cultures, just inland from the Adriatic coast in the southern part of Bosnia-Herzegovina. Mostar's inhabitants are a mix of Orthodox Serbs, Catholic Croats, and Muslim Bosniaks who lived in seeming harmony before the Yugoslav wars of the 1990s then suffered horribly when the warring neighborhoods turned the city into a killing zone. The persistent reminders of the war make my visit emotionally draining, but I'm hopeful that the connecting with the people here will also make it rewarding. Before the war, Mostar was famous for its 400-year-old Turkish-style stone bridge Its elegant single-pointed arch was a symbol of Muslim society here and the town's status as the place where East met West in Europe. Then during the 1990s, Mostar became a poster child for the war. First, the Croats and Bosniaks forced out the Serbs. Then they turned their guns on each other, staring each other down across the front line that ran through the middle of the city. Across the world, people wept when the pummeled old bridge, bombarded by Croat paramilitary Artillery shells from the hilltop above finally collapsed in the river. Today I walk over the rebuilt bridge in a city that is thriving. It happens to be prom night. The kids are out, their Bosnian hormones bursting with excitement. Feeling young and sexy is a great equalizer. As long as you have beer, loud music, twinkling stars, and no war, your country's GDP really doesn't matter. And yet as I stroll through teeming streets, it's chilling to think that these people... Who make me a sandwich? Stop for me when I cross the street. Show off their paintings and direct the church choir. Were killing each other in a bloody war not so long ago. Walking past the small cemetery congested with a hundred white marble Muslim tombstones, I noticed the dates. Everyone died in 1993, 94, or 1995. This was a park before 1993 when the war heated up snipers were a constant concern they'd pick off anyone they saw walking down the street bodies were left for weeks along the main boulevard which had become the deadly front line most stars cemeteries were too exposed but this tree-filled park was relatively safe from snipers people buried their loved ones here under cover of darkness while pondering these tombstones I meet Alan a 30-something Muslim who emigrated to Florida during the war and is now back home in Mostar. In those years, night was the time when we lived, he explains. We didn't walk, we ran, and we dressed in black. There was no electricity. If Croat fighters didn't kill us with their bullets, they drove us mad with their hateful pop music. It was constantly blasting from the Croat side of town. Alan points to a tree growing out of a ruined building and says, It's a strange thing in nature. Sweet figs can grow with almost no soil. He seems to be speaking as much about the difficult lot of Mostar's people as its vegetation. There are blackened ruins everywhere. When I ask why, after 15 years the ruins still stand, Alan explains, Confusion about who owns what. Surviving companies have no money. The Bank of Yugoslavia, which held held the mortgages, is now gone. No one will invest until it's clear who owns the buildings. Mostar's skyline is tense with symbols of religious conflict. Ten minarets pierce the sky like proud exclamation points. And across the river, twice as tall as the tallest minaret, stands the Croats' new Catholic church spire. As we hike to the top of the stone bridge, Allen points to the hilltop high above the town marked by a single bold and floodlit cross. He says, we Muslims believe that the cross marks the spot from where they shelled this bridge, like a celebration. The next morning, before I leave Mostar, I stop at a tiny grocery store to order a sandwich from a woman I befriended the day before. She's a gorgeous person, sad to be living in a frustrating economy and unable to bend down because of a piece of shrapnel in her back that doctors decided was safer left in. As she slices the sandwich meat, I bend down to gather carrots and cherries to add to what will be a fine picnic meal on wheels. On my way out of town, I drive over patched bomb craters in the pavement. In the capital city of Sarajevo, the bomb craters have been filled with red resin, which looks like splattered blood to commemorate those who died. Here, the craters are patched in black to match the street. Because I know what they are, they appear red in my mind. And that will do it uh, for the history seg- events segment. Right now, I'm going to take a break, and when I come back, Michael Bailey and I will sit down and talk about The Day After and other 1980s nuclear holocaust films.
1: Did you know that Michael Bailey hosts a podcast?
0: Yeah, I host or co-host a number of podcasts, actually.
1: Did you know that Michael Bailey releases his podcasts through the dark web?
0: Now, that's not true at all. I release my shows on the regular internet. I don't even know how to get to the dark web.
1: Did you know that Michael's financing comes from shady donors who make up a cabal of people that like to kick puppies and kittens. What are you talking about? I'm pretty much
0: self-financed outside of a modest Patreon that I produce no extra content.
1: Did ever. you know that Michael Bailey supports free podcasts for everyone and also works on his shows with potential foreign spies and anarchists?
0: Of course I support free podcasts for everyone. And Andy isn't a spy of any kind. Bethany and Allison are hardly anarchists. And Jeff... Okay, you may have me there. Jeff is a little out there.
1: Why would you support such a man by listening to his power? All right,
0: that's enough of that. Can we, can we get rid of creepy voice guy? He, he's not working out. He really just isn't.
1: You can't get rid of me that easily. I'm a scary voice that is meant to frighten people into...
0: Okay, okay, that's that's better. Hey, everyone. My name is Michael Bailey, and I run the Fortress of bailey podcasting network. The Fortress is a collection of podcasts that I either host or co-host, all housed in a single place to make things easier on me. The shows in the network include From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which I host with Jeffrey Taylor, and is all about the Superman books published between 1986 and 2006, The Overlooked Dark Knight, a non-index index index show, which is a Batman podcast that is about Batman stories hardly anyone talks about that I host with Andrew Leyland, Views from the Long Box, my comics-centric podcast that has been online since 2007, and the newest show on the network, The Superman and Lois Tapes, which I host with Allison and Bethany and is all about the CW series Superman and Lois. The network can be found at www.fortressofbailytude.com which also houses one of the web's largest repositories of information on the death and return of Superman from 1992 and 1993. You can subscribe to any of these programs through Apple Podcasts slash iTunes or through your favorite podcatcher, either a la carte or through the Master Feed, which has all of the episodes of all of the shows. The Fortress and its shows are also on Spotify, if you're into that sort of thing. The Fortress of Bailey-tude Podcasting Network. Doing my best to relieve boredom since 2007. The music on this trailer, Delay Rock, and Political Action Ad are by Kevin McLeod and are used under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license. Did you know? Oh, shut up!
3: One by nine. The President is presently in direct communication.
2: The current world intelligence situation, and you might pay particular notes to the nuclear submarines off the
1: east and west coast. Having already captured NATO advanced positions...
3: Hey, any of you guys hear anything about an alert?
1: I really don't think either side wants to be the first to use a nuclear device. It's not a question
0: of who, but where. East Germany sealed off the borders to West
1: Berlin. And yeah. and it's not are crazy, crazy but not that crazy. I don't believe this is happening. We have a massive attack against the U.S. at this time, ICBMs.
3: Over 300 missiles inbound now. Either we fired first and they're going to try to hit what's left. but they fired first and we just got our missiles out of the ground in time.
2: On November 20th, 1983, one of the most controversial TV movies of all time aired on ABC. Directed by Nicholas Meyer, who is coming off the success of the previous year's Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, The Day After is about a nuclear attack on the heartland of America and how it affects a wide cast of characters. Even before its initial airing, was already garnering a lot of notice in the press and protests from a number of people, including uneasy sponsors. It was preceded by a viewer discretion advisory by one of the film's stars, John Cullum, and followed by a roundtable discussion on the ABC news show Viewpoint, which was hosted by Ted Koppel. Ultimately, the show attracted 100 million viewers. This is still a record for a one-night-only television movie, And I have to say that it ranks 15th in terms of all-time overall U.S. viewership of a single program. Number one on that list, by the way, is the Apollo 11 moon landing. Number eight on that list is Nixon's resignation speech. Number 11 is the MASH finale. Hi, Rob. Number 14 is part eight of the miniseries Roots. And the remainder of that list, 10 out of the most recent 11 Super Bowls. Anyway, that's all preface to say uh, that this will be a look at the day after, as well as a look at this subgenre, the nuclear holocaust film, which saw a renaissance in the early 1980s, especially uh, because of the heightened tensions between the united states and the soviet union during the first part of the reagan administration and along with me is a good friend of mine who is the host of a number of shows including views from the long box and from crisis to crisis a superman podcast please welcome michael bailey to the show how are you doing
0: I am here to have a fun and frivolity filled talk about nuclear war.
2: Oh yeah, it's gonna be a hot <laughs> town and the hot time in the old town tonight.
0: Because <laughs> usually when we get to get together, we're talking about comics or we're talking about a movie. It's Like the yeah. last time we got together, we talked about Pump All Up the Volume, volume. Yeah. and that I think was a shared experience of two people that were reliving their early 90s experiences mm-hmm. <laughs> and now we get to go back to when we were scared we were going to die at any time yeah,
3: yeah.
2: <laughs> did you do um we still do tornado drills in, in high schools and stuff where it's the duck and cover drill but back in my day they were calling them air raid drills and they'd actually
0: pull the air raid siren and like oh, wow. <laughs> kindergarten no we, yeah <laughs> um see i lived in pennsylvania tornadoes weren't really a uh, a thing we would do yeah. fire drills.
2: Oh yeah, we'd, every, uh,
0: where everybody would have to go outside.
2: Yeah, no. Uh, yeah, we had to do air raid drills. They actually called them, and we did the duck and cover against the wall of the elementary school.
0: Because <laughs> that brick facade is gonna. Yeah.
3: Oh yeah.
2: <laughs>
0: that's gonna protect you yeah. from the. It's like if you watch like old duck and cover uh, PSAs mm-hmm. from the 50s. They're kind of laughable. Yeah. Uh, But you also got to realize that the government at that point was just trying to make people as comfortable as possible. (laughs) Because they knew they were going to (laughs) die.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, In fact, I think I covered those back on episode three, I believe, of this miniseries. Two or three. It was one of the... uh, Yeah, when I... uh, Yeah, the Duck and Cover and uh, (laughs) The Red Menace, I think, was the other one or whatever. Burt the Turtle. Yeah, Burt the Turtle. Um, There was a story on... News Twelve Long Island's webpage uh, maybe about a year ago or six months ago, where uh, they were renovating a school in um, near where my sister lives in Amityville, and uh, they were doing some sort of expansion or something. So they were knocking down a wall, and they knocked down a wall, and the wall had been put up over the bomb shelter and and there was like the the bomb shelter was intact and the stuff was stored that was stored there the food and everything that was found it was pretty i was like wow that's pretty impressive so at one point they had just walled it up and forgotten it was there um i don't know where the one was in my high school because there was a uh, nobody had bothered to take down the you know the old blue and orange, uh, blue and yellow fallout shelter signs. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, nobody had bothered to take that down off the outer wall of my high school. So, um, I I don't know where it was in the high school. It's somewhere in the basement. It might have been the basement that they had renovated right before I started. That they made the new technology wing. So they put like the. You said, wall-
0: and you said this was your high school, right? Yeah, my high
2: school was built in 1959.
0: I'm guaranteeing you when they, when they finally cleaned that out, that it was like a wash in like cigarette paper, cigarette and condom (laughs) wrappers. Oh yeah. Yeah.
2: (laughs) That or it had been storing like old athletic gear.
0: (laughs) Yeah,
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, there's some stuff like, um, I was, when I was talking to my friend a couple of episodes ago, Pop Culture David, we were reminiscing a little bit about a high school on, where we're off the air. We were talking about how old that building was. And there were, like, I, I distinctly remember, like, somebody had carved into graffiti into one of the desks and put 79 in it. And I'm like, <laughs> just like, wow. shit was left over from, yeah. <laughs> yeah we,
0: we had an old high school, too. Uh, they they warned us not when we were in the chorus room not to, like, bang our feet too much on the floor because of the asbestos. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny because they completely rebuilt it uh and that kind of broke my heart because uh-huh. i have like this very vivid image of what the, how the entire high school was laid out and had this like courtyard mm-hmm. that they just got rid of uh and it's just like okay i can't even i can't even go back to that and remember because everything is now completely different mm-hmm. and it flooded like 2 years ago oh, wow.
2: too <laughs> yeah the one i work at is like Parts of it are really, really old, and parts of it are new. It's like one of those kind of—they just kept adding on. So there are certain hallways where they're like—it's almost like you're taking a tour of different school architecture through the decades or something. Um, anyway, uh, but yeah, so um, so high school and stuff aside, we are kind of going back to our elementary school days because we were mm-hmm. right before we went on air. You were uh, in second grade when this aired. I was in first, yep. so neither of us watched this when it was first run because I don't. <laughs>
0: My <laughs> I was specifically not allowed to because I had literal screaming, waking up nightmares about nuclear war. Mm. Uh, I don't remember them. Uh, the uh, The one that I have a vague memory of is just everything was exploding. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what nuclear war was. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what radiation was. I just knew that there was this ever present thing hanging over us that, uh, you know, was just kind of threatening humanity just in general and in my child-like way, I just knew that everyone was going to die. And I have this vivid memory of during the 84 election. Apparently at one point Mondale made a joke about nuclear war and the the way the, the, the nightly news framed it, they said no joke and I just start crying. And my dad's like, what's wrong? I'm like, he's saying it's no joke. It's right there. And he's trying to explain to me, What's going on? But I'm just, I'm gone. I'm just, (laughs) I am too much into my sobbing to Mm -hmm. to understand what this man is telling me.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I don't try to remember when I first grasped the idea of a nuclear war. Um, I I remember hearing the phrase, no nukes, Mm -hmm. on an episode of Greatest American Hero, because it's something with a plot point with Ralph and a bunch of his kids protesting at a no nukes rally. I, I.
0: Now he was a hippie, so. Yeah,
2: I, 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 it wasn't in the first season. It might have been in the second, but I, I um, but I, I vaguely remember that because that was like my that was one of the, that was the only show that and the Dukes of the Hazzard were the only shows that I was allowed to stay up and watch. Um, at that age, uh, I'm trying to think it was just, it was almost like, yeah, like I, I, I think it was something I'd heard about and never really fully grasped the concept until much later. It was kind of this abstract thing that um, almost like, uh, like, a, like an answer on a test somewhere or something. And mm-hmm. then we learned a little bit more about it and stuff. And, um, I remember reading about it a little bit when, like in '85, because of the anniversary of Hiroshima, and then so like it, it kind of trickled in bit by bit until I was probably like in junior high and high school, and we you know we we learned a little bit more about like you know what the nuclear threat was in, in, in class and stuff. But by then, the Cold War was pretty much over.
3: Yeah, um, I,
0: I vividly remember when the Soviet Union fell, and I have mm-hmm. to say specifically the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union and Russia were. Two different things, basically. Yeah. Uh, Russia was a country. The Soviet Union was a collection of countries mm-hmm. that were under the the control of the USSR. Yeah. And I remember, I, I don't remember the exact date. I think it was during the summer, but I was like 15. It was 91, and I was just like. Oh good
2: I don't have to yeah. worry about this now yeah it was ninety one is as I'm getting into it as we go ninety one is when the like there's a coup against gorbachev that doesn't mm-hmm. really succeed and the the writing is on the wall fully, and the official end date is december thirty first of ninety one so yeah. yeah so we're for this episode's going to drop and at the when this episodes drop it's it's the very very end of may, so we're we're like um we're coasting in the last six, five, six, seven months. And, and it really is like Eastern Europe in itself. All the revolutions are more or less over, except for, And uh, something I highlighted in the first segment of this episode here. Um, in Yugoslavia, Yugoslavia's revolution and civil war rage on into the nineties. Um, but yeah, but you're right. It's, it is like by the time you hit the end of 1991, it's, it is, and, and I, and I distinctly remember too, because the 92 Olympics, you had, them competing under what they call the unified team. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, and it was a, it was a very, um, you know, and it's kind of just looking at through the lens of sports, remembering how like a lot of these countries then kind of split off, um, into their own and stuff. So, um, when did you first see this though? I mean, like you you knew about it and, and I had learned about it at some point in my childhood and, you know, but I never did. I, I, didn't watch it when I was a little kid. When did you first finally actually watch the day
0: after? It had to be 2004, 2005. We were at Tower Records in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And Tower Records, for the longest time, was next to the Lenox Mall. It was just like this little adjacent mall area uh, that had a, a... like at a not a Circuit City, but a, a Comp USA in there too. <laughs> That's where you I know, bought just, my first computer. <laughs> just just to, just to totally date everything about the story.
3: Yeah.
0: Uh, but my we had gone to a one day comic show. My friend Eric was with us, and we went to the new location of Tower, which was kind of a weird building in and of itself. And I found a DVD of the day after, hmm. and I went huh, I have never seen this. I have heard of this, and I remember being scared of it as a kid and being told specifically that I wasn't allowed to watch it, but I'm an adult now. And we went back to the house, and Eric was still hanging out with us, and we watched it. And it was just one of the most depressing experiences of my life. So uh, I've seen it like two or three times since then, which I don't know what that says about me as a person or my my mental health. Mm -hmm. Like like I I guess I can handle it. But uh, last year during the pandemic, because, you know, I I wasn't uh, upset or freaked out enough. I I started I, I found it on YouTube and I watched it at work on like my lunch break. So it'd be like coming back from lunch. Like, before the bombs hit, it's kind of (laughs) okay. After the bombs hit, you're not really in a good headspace.
2: Oh, hey, you know what YouTube's good for? People have cut the out and just given you the the bomb going off part of it. So you just want to watch everybody die (laughs) in the nuclear explosion. You can just watch that.
0: (laughs) But yeah, that and and apparently there's a Blu-ray out now. Oh, really? that has both the 122 television minute, uh, showing mm-hmm. and the 127 minute theatrical version. Mm. Uh, so I, I don't know if I'm going to invest in the blu-ray because I've got the DVD and that's depressing enough. Yeah. But yeah,
2: I, I think I watched this for the first time, probably around the same time you did. And it hit cause I caught it on the sci-fi channel. I believe it was the sci-fi channel it was on cable and I think it was sci-fi and I, I, I may have watched the whole thing all the way through, or I may have gotten interrupted at some point in the second half of it and never gotten back to finishing it. But um, this is like my – I think this is my second time watching it. I watched – for for the purposes of this, I watched whatever was available on YouTube. And you said the work print is available. I didn't get a chance to watch it, that. And
0: it's not anymore. I can't find oh, okay. it. Uh, but it was it was on there for about five minutes, in the, and I watched about – because right after I watched the movie, I found the work print, mm-hmm. so I started watching that. And, uh, it's just some of the special effects aren't finished. Yeah. And there's like, like, insert thing here <laughs> shots that work prints do. Yeah.
2: Alright, so, um. So a little background on this, uh, the idea for the day day after came from Brandon Stoddard. He was the head of ABC motion pictures, uh, in the late seventies and he, and early eighties. And he was inspired by 1979's the China syndrome. Uh, this was the Jane Fonda movie that depicted an an accident and a nuclear power plant. That movie coincidentally premiered shortly before the accident at three mile Island. Um, and, uh, you know, there's been a lot of, there was a lot of press of whether or not the Three Mile Island accident accident helped the box office of the China Syndrome. Um, anyway, Lawrence, Kansas was chosen as the main setting of the film. It's the quote, geographic center of the United States, or at least the continental U.S., and had a number of locations that worked out well for filming. Um, so they were going for something that was kind of like literally central to everyone um, and as stereotypical as possible. Um, the movie, like I said in my intro, was controversial right off the bat. Um, writing production, um, ABC was worried about financing the movie uh, and... They were also trying to make a movie that people found respect, uh, acceptable and families would be able to watch. Um, and, you know, you shared with me, and I'll, and I'll post this in the show notes, you shared with me an old Eyewitness News, uh, from, uh, you know, WABC New York clip, and it was about eight minutes long. Uh, the back half of it is just kind of like, a, like one of those, somebody explains the intellectual side of this, but the first half of it is really interesting because it's, um, a reporter going out and interviewing people who watched it or who had missed it, um, going to like bars where bars were showing it. Like, you know, it's just this whole thing that like everybody was tuned in and they go to like this family in Jersey who, um, like they sent the little kids to bed, but their 11 year old was allowed to stay up and watch it with them because they thought it was like necessary they know about this. So that's kind of what they were going for and they, they obviously succeeded. In, in their uh, production here um they found sponsors but I think it's important to note that after the nuclear attack they didn't air a single commercial so like all the commercials for the day after are aired before the bombs go off because nobody wanted to sponsor or nobody wanted to have like a craft American singles commercial air like you know <laughs> while everybody's dying of radiation poisoning which I totally get. <laughs> you know? It's like...
0: Like a Juicy Fruit commercial.
2: Yeah. <laughs> juicy Fruit. It's has to move. It's going move, yeah. It's just
0: like after the death of humanity. Yeah. <laughs>
2: um it took a while to get to the screen it went through several drafts and there was an entire other director attached to it robert butler um who was there but he left and then they brought on nicholas meyer meyer uh insisted that the film essentially be as uncensored as possible and he didn't want it to be a typical disaster movie and uh that's important because remember disaster movies were Huge in the 1970s. And um, Mm -hmm. this is coming right on the heel of all of those. So this would have been around the time where the TV movies were starting to be natural disasters. So he didn't want the towering Inferno or Earthquake is like the one that I think of the most, you know, like this sort of, um, that sort of storyline. He wanted it to be as um, visceral and and, and real as possible. Um, And apparently he did a lot of research, including consulting with the Department of Defense, um and he wanted a story or he didn't want a story in which the Soviets fired first. Shockingly, the the DOD did. <laughs> like
0: of course yeah, they did Yeah, they, they, they were pretty hard they were pretty hardcore about that, yeah. apparently.
2: But in the film, um it's purposely vague as to who fires the first shot in the long-range mm-hmm. missile nuclear exchange. Um and that's something to um that is something that I, I think a lot of us who grew up understand the difference between the different like missiles. But there's like because like you know there's only been two nuclear missiles used in a war. They were bombs that were dropped from a B-29 because we didn't have missiles back in the 1940s. But by the time you get through the 60s and the 70s, et cetera, you have. Mid-range missiles, and this is described actually in, in that Eyewitness News clip, you have mid-range missiles that if you put them in, say, West Germany, they could reach the Soviet Union, but you they but you couldn't put them in, in say, uh, Kansas and have them reach the Soviet Union. Um, these, what were fired here, were ICBMs, Intercontinental Ballistic Missiles, um, yes. the, the huge ones, the same rockets that Superman was throwing into space in... Um, in in Superman four and diverting in Superman, the movie, uh, you know, these, these huge, huge rock, these huge, huge missiles that were about the size of a Saturn V, but they carried a nuclear warhead. Um, and those, I think it was the estimate would have been, if it was fired in our country, it would have reached them in about a half an hour. And, um, yeah, so that's, uh, and, and so that they, he did a lot of research into that and made sure that he was as realistic as possible when, having all of this happen. Um, we mentioned the work print. Uh, it has surfaced. Uh, it, the, that's because the original cut of the movie was three hours long. And it, had it been three hours long, they would have had to air it over two nights. And uh, one of the big reasons that they cut it down from three hours just to fit it into one night, which probably was a really good idea. I can't imagine this being a miniseries in that sense. Like the second night, the ratings would have plummeted. I don't think anybody would have been able to...
0: Yeah, no one would have come numbers. back for that, uh, which is odd because I kind of remember it being a miniseries mm. for for whatever reason. But you know, the mind plays tricks on you. I I, I do want to add uh, to to your, your 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 background is that they they the name Robert Butler came up. Uh-huh. This is a guy that directed Star Trek: The Cage, huh? And he directed like episodes of Batman, and he directed the pilot of Lois and Clark. I oh, mean, is, I mean, he's he's. He, He's got a story career. I cannot imagine him making this movie.
2: <laughs> that is really interesting.
0: You know, but uh, but guys like that,
2: um, you learn about guys like that when, like, their Emmy, tr- when, when they <laughs> this is so macabre, when, when their name comes up in the Emmy role of, of people yeah. who the Because, like, a, a director in television is much different than a director in a movie, at least as far as their importance, you know? Um because i think your director for a movie would be like the equivalent of like a showrunner in a television series like the executive producer of a television series has more power but there are the there are men and women who like make entire careers out of just like they're like workmen like or journeyman yeah, directors i mean he's
0: got a an imdb that reads like war and yeah. peace so. so
2: just and so i can totally see it's like okay this is a guy who's got the the chops of experienced director and we know that this guy can probably get it in and probably get it in under budget too which is probably one of their one of their concerns um, the, the you said the 220 uh, theatrical cut so to speak we have the two hours so they basically it in, in under two hour two and a half hours um, and uh, at one point Meyer actually quit the project because after principal shooting because ABC and him were fighting over the editing. And, um, so he quit and ABC tried to get people to edit themselves and they couldn't do it. So they basically begged him to come back on and he did finish it. Uh, he did finish it out. Um, in addition to, uh, the warning at the beginning of the show, he, uh, ABC produced a viewer's guide, which, um, I found in my research. Um, I think io nine or the AV club, one of those, one of them covered this as part of a, a series of several blog posts and they linked to it and I will link to it in the show notes. It's really interesting. It's, it's like one of those, um, uh, pamphlet type of guides of how to talk to your family and how to talk to people about nuclear war, you know, like, almost like the type of viewer guide you get with, like, an episode of Degrassi Junior High or something. It's it's really, really fascinating that they put that out as, like, educational materials. So they they did take this very, very seriously. So, so like I said, this aired on November 20th, 1983, and it had enormous ratings. Um, Still is the record holder for a single-night television movie event. So I'm going to go through a plot summary. Um, It's not... complete, I'm sure I left some stuff out, but, you know, just for the sake of just giving you guys the gist of what it's about. Um, We follow a number of characters living in and around Lawrence, Kansas. Um, And this is supposed to be, it it airs in 83. It's supposed to be closer to like 85, I think. And with a lot of these, they set them a little bit further into the future so that it was like, you know, because we all, I think they all assume the audience knew, what was going on? And it was like, okay, this is the situation now, but what if it gets worse? And to the, to that point. So, um, so this is like roughly 85. Tensions between the United States and the USSR had gotten to the point where we were on the brink of war. These characters include Dr. Russell Oakes, uh, played by Academy Award winner Jason Robards and his family. Uh, the Dahlbergs and the parents were played by John Cullen and, uh, BB, BB Beach. Bishar Besh, I can never remember how to pronounce her last name, uh, Carol Marcus from Star Trek Two, um, and her daughter's fiance is played by Jeff East, and his real voice too.
0: Yes, and his
2: real nose. Yes. A team of scientists at Kansas State University are some other characters, the head of which is played by a then-unknown John Lithgow. Stephen Klein, played by Steve Gutenberg, who is a college student. And Airman First Class Billy McCoy, played by William Allen Young. I should also note that we have supporting characters in the hospital played by Joe Beth Williams, who is fresh off of uh, Polvergeist, as well as a very young Amy Madigan. Um, I should also point out that Robards is pretty much the star power because even though there are a lot yes. of well-known names in this movie, many of them were not a lot of them were still unknown. Like Steve Gutenberg was like a year away from um uh, Police Academy because police academy comes out in eighty four. Um, and the only other the only other movie I remember seeing him in that had aired prior to this was that really terrible village people movie can't stop the music. <laughs> which aired on HBO once and I caught part of it I was like that's Steve Gutenberg and the Village People so there you go um, okay so the plot characters intersect in places, but it's not a bunch of interconnected stories. So it's kind of like they cross paths here and there, but we're not all getting to a place where they're all in one place with the exception of a few of them showing at the same hospital from time to time because they're all in the same geographic area. Uh, We're getting a variety or slice of life of what's going on in that area. In the first hour of the film, we get to see more or less the 24 hours that lead up to what will be a massive nuclear attack on the United States due to escalating tensions in West Germany and the Persian gulf the threat of attack grows over the course of the hour and we see that through various newscasts and that the characters watch or listen to many however blow it off until there are calls for a mass evacuation and the emergency broadcast system floods the airwaves Dr. Oaks gets caught in traffic on the way to Lawrence, Kansas, where he hears the broadcast and decides to head back to his home in Kansas City. Stephen, having heard those broadcasts, starts hitchhiking to Joplin, Missouri, which is his home, and the Dahlbergs, who have a prepped bomb shelter, head for that. Billy McCoy is at a launch site in Kansas. The ICBMs are launched. Dr. McCoy, uh, McCoy flees the launch site and takes refuge in a truck trailer away from the blast. The Dahlbergs make to the bomb shelter in time, although their son is blinded. Oaks takes refuge under the dashboard of his car. He's out of the blast zone, but he protects his eyesight from because if you look at something, it's like looking at an eclipse. You could go blind, and is and he's far enough from the blast radius not to get killed. Uh, we do get like one family who are kind of unnamed, but they're basically there to die in the nuclear holocaust because mm-hmm. they like at one point they're screwing around. They're not paying attention to it. They're literally screwing around, and um and like it ends with like them running for shelter and like basically being blown away in that sort of i think it's one of those effects of like there's a freeze frame and a negative and um, yeah it's actually pretty scary if you think about it it was uh, you know it just came out of nowhere um the whole nuclear sequence which goes on for a few minutes is a pretty brutal display for for television uh with, with some impressive special effects at the time because apparently um The Department of Defense would not let them use archival footage of, like, nuclear testings and stuff, so they came up with their own effects. And it was apparently supposed to be more graphic than it actually was. Uh, They inserted a few things back in for the theatrical version and what have you. But, uh, But it is still pretty brutal when you watch it on television. Uh, After the smoke clears, things go from bad to worse. An EMP has destroyed the electrical grid. Steven reaches the Dahlberg farm. He joins them, but then he's exposed to radiation when uh, he runs out of the shelter after their daughter. Uh, She's looking for her fiancé, but we know her fiancé is dead. Um Food and water start to grow short in the area. Martial law is imposed. Stephen and Denise Dahlberg, who's the daughter, take her little brother to the hospital in Lawrence. Billy McCoy, who's been traveling the countryside only to discover that everything's been destroyed, also heads to that hospital, but he dies of radiation poisoning. And the same can be said of Stephen and the people that he's with. In fact... Nobody really survives this film, except for uh, John Lithgow. Uh, toward the end of the movie, Jim Dahlberg, who has been doing what he can to help rebuild the civilization they once knew, is shot on sight by squatters who are on his own farm. Oaks leaves the hospital because he is dying of radiation poisoning, and he heads back to what is left of his uh, home in Kansas City. In a scene that juxtaposes Dahlberg's death, uh, there are squatters there as well, but they welcome him instead of... Uh, pulling out a shotgun, and the movie ends with John Lithgow's character getting on a radio and sending out a broadcast to see if anyone is out there, implying that nobody really is. It's easier to get through than I thought it would be, considering some of the other ones I watched for this that were hard to get through, but even then, this is a rough movie,
0: It's a fascinating movie because it starts with kind of a cold open of showing like a a man coming onto a military plane and taking control for the day. Mm -hmm. And they just kind of talk about what's going on and they, you know, they take off. And then it cuts to this beautiful panoramic like opening of Dallas shot. Yeah of of kansas and an opening song that is t- uh, kind of a juxtaposition of the the music from this this uh 1938 film called the river mm-hmm. and with a hymn kind of put in there uh how firm a foundation and when you listen to it it's just like it, it, it's basically like this is everything that is great about america prepare to watch it be destroyed <laughs> And you really, they do a fantastic job of not only layering in the coming war, but of making you kind of care about these characters. You know, J- Jason Robards and his wife have this kind of a loving relationship. Mm-hmm. He's got problems with his daughter who wants to move uh and theoretically move in with a guy. Yeah. Uh, and so they have their discussion about that. The Dahlbergs, she's getting married, uh, and she's messing around with her fiance. Uh, and there's this whole thing with a diaphragm, which I found completely and utterly like adorable. Uh, just, just, just the fact that the sister, Lori, is chasing after her younger sister who stole her diaphragm and, but they don't let the mother know. And it's just like all this really like slice of life stuff. Yeah. And then it starts going pear-shaped in a hurry, and Stephen First is in this movie randomly?
2: Mm-hmm. He's one of the students in the in, in the college, I believe.
0: Which is or, weird, because yeah. this was right around the time he was doing St. Elsewhere. hmm So, and he was, a, a, like, a doctor in that, but now he's, like, his character back in Animal yeah. House? Yeah. Uh, and, and Jeff East with his lovely blonde hair, uh, not drunk, I might add, <laughs> from what I could see. Uh, that's a deep cut to something else. And if you know what I'm talking about, you're probably chuckling to yourself right now. <laughs> I know. But when the bomb, when the war starts, I think the best part of it is that it doesn't happen when the first blast happens. It happens when they see the missiles launching. And that, to me, is one of the scariest parts of the movie. Yeah. Because there's, um,
2: like I said, the... And I think it's even pointed out by, like, Lithgow's character or somebody, like, the time at which the bombs, the, the missiles are going to take to get there. And knowing that you essentially have half an hour left... And that that's yeah. where it, it gets really really tense and really scary because you're right. The, one of the one of the things I really liked about this is how the war is there, but it's also in the background, you know. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of people who um, they, they blow it off in a way that is very realistic, and a lot of oh they'll never, you know, they'll never go that far. And that was you know a lot of people were very scared of nuclear war, yeah. but also a lot of people really did believe that no one would ever be that stupid to press the button. You know, like, you know, there's some people actually really did believe in the idea of mutually assured destruction. Like, you know, you, you, we we Mm -hmm. can't possibly fire the, fire any of these missiles because that will wipe each other off the map. what's the point of that? So having it in the background like that and having them watch news reports and stuff and keeping it on the citizens, Um, yes, there is a military guy, but he, even his like whole thing, Billy McCoy's whole thing is like, he's trying to get home to his girlfriend or wife or whoever. Like, you know, he, he even tells the guys who are at the, the missile silos, he's like, you know, we got to get out of here and stuff. And, and, you know, they stay on there and long story short, like he leaves, he essentially goes AWOL in the middle of this. So we don't get the politicians. We don't get the, the president and stuff.
0: Yeah. The people making the decisions we, we, and and the cool part of his end of it is they see the missiles going off and a couple of them are going underground.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: and he's just like, "No, I'm just going to make a run for it." And I'm like, "Well, what happened to those guys? Yeah. Like, they they survived the blast theoretically,
3: mm-hmm.
0: but how much food did they really have, yeah. and how much supplies and?" You know, the the whole thing with him and his wife was really touching because you realize she's dead. Yeah. I mean, and and that's the thing is that they made you care enough about Mm -hmm. these characters that you cared about what happened to
2: them. And this is not a heroes and villains type of movie, whereas, cause there's a lot of apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic movies where there's like, you know, you've got your protagonist, but then you have the ones who are the villains, the awful people. And yeah, the John Collins character, Dalberg gets, Jim Dahlberg gets shot by the squatters and stuff like that. And, but there's, you know, this isn't like, um, some sort of Mad Max scenario or something like yeah. that, you know, and, 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 and what have you. Um, I don't think we're that far enough into the future for anything like that to happen, but they, they really do try to keep it to that. And the other thing is that I think this is really important. Well, we have that one red shirt family, as I call them by notes, because their whole purpose is to die. Of the these family who is ignorant. Nobody there's it this is not a really kind of like a bunch of people make a lot of stupid decisions like that does happen in a disaster movie. The bad decisions made are made here out of panic and not knowing what's going on. Like they they they're done very naturally. Like Billy is desperate to get back to his family like at one point jim dalberg's daughter denise whatever her name is um she runs out into the fields because she just so wants to go see if her fiance is alive and then steve chases after her and it's like honey you just exposed yourself to a ton of radiation you're gonna die
0: it's a great scene because he goes you can't feel it and you can't see it but it's going through you like an x-ray yeah And it's just like – it was basically kind of an info dump scene Mm -hmm. because it's explaining what radiation does to the human body. But it's also this kind of panic and they're kicking up dust. And you know that dust is just completely radioactive. Yeah. So they're breathing it in.
2: Yeah. And even like when he shows up at the farm, you know, with the bombshell, like they – he – he shows up at their farm. He doesn't even know them. He's just on his way. He's been trying to hitch a ride basically. And he comes upon the house and he starts, he starts, he's essentially looting the house or he's rooting through it to find something to eat. And they hear him and he comes up and they let him in, you know, and it's, it's, uh, and and the dynamic between the family in the shelter is really good because, you know, they're, they're desperately trying to keep it together, and it's it's going really, really horribly, you know.
0: Yeah, because the boy is blinded. Yeah. Um, she's having a mental breakdown. The the older mm-hmm. daughter, they leave their dog to die, which was not supposed to be the most depressing thing yeah. about this movie to me, but it yeah. was to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and. and-
2: you care about them to the point where when Jim dies at the end, it's chilling and you feel terrible for it. Because like I was at, cause he was attending like church meetings of like the people in the town had gotten together and they were really becoming like a little bit of a co-op. You know, they were, they, were, they were helping each other out, which is actually a natural human tendency in times of disaster. You know, people rally together and they do tend to, okay, like, how can we help each other? What can we do? And there's this semblance of order that's starting to be restored in a way that is very um, congenial and actually, like, gives you a little bit of hope for humanity. And then he heads back to um, his farm and... And there's, like, you know, Cletus and his family, and he's like, you know, you're on my land, and the guy just blows him away, and you're just like,
0: Yeah, he gets around, he gets off his the horse, and he points the gun at them, but you didn't see that somebody else was there, and they had a gun, and they just kill him. And he kills him, and immediately just sits back down like nothing happened. Yeah. And it cuts to the house where the mother and the daughter are cleaning dishes. Like totally normal stuff. They're doing it like candlelight. Mm -hmm. But, and and one of the more interesting things about their end of it was when they go to the meeting about what they're going to do, and they're sitting there, okay, so what you got to do is you got to dig up, you know, like six inches under the soil because that soil hasn't been affected by the radiation. And everyone's like, how are we going to do that? Yeah. And and to me, it was just one of those things where the government has prepared for this and they've put thought into it. But that thought is all theoretical and now it's trying to be applied practically. And there's like this pushback
2: almost. Yeah, Yeah, you start. And and that's that's I mean, that's so true. Like you we've both been in those in, in a way more mild. Way and professionally, we've both been in those situations of like, you know, oh, some sort of weird theoretical thing that's being put into practice. And like, you immediately realize that, like, you know, <laughs> somebody made this uh, more complicated you, than it had to be.
0: You've had this worse than I have, but we actually had to last year watch an active shooter video <sighs> at work to basically prepare us in case this kind of thing happens. Yeah. Uh, it, it, It's sort of like that. You know, you, you, they give you all this information. All of that's going out the window once the first shot is fired, literally.
2: Yeah. Back to the apocalypse. Jason Robarts, I think, is, is really good. He gives this movie a little bit more of He gives this movie a fair amount of gravitas. It doesn't phone it in, and this could be a role that somebody could phone in because, you know, it's a TV movie. The man's won an Oscar at this point uh, for all the president's men, which is one of a favorite movie of mine. And there's like, again, there's that whole semblance of trying to do things normally. And he is a surgeon and him and his hospital staff are trying their best to like, and it's really interesting. Like how does a hospital work when there's no power and, and how, when they're mm-hmm. overrun by patients and like, you know, he's got Amy Madigan who's pregnant and, you know, um, she has the baby and stuff like that. And, and it's um, it's a good setting for a movie like this because uh it would be one of the first places that a lot of people go to and they do get overrun with patients and at one point they have to like separate the people who have hope for living and the people who are essentially there to be hospice patients basically until they until they die and it gets worse and worse as it goes and he starts to get sick too and that's why he walks home at the end
0: yeah Joe Beth Williams is really good in her mm-hmm. role um Calvin Young as uh, Doctor Sam, I thought, had a uh, uh, delivered a really good performance. Watching the hospital staff deal with, you know, they're running out of medicine, they're running out of water, yeah. they're running out of, you know, the, like at one point they show a surgery and they've just got a bunch of flashlights kind of rigged together over the person they're operating on. Yeah. And and Amy Amy Madigan, uh, she's pregnant and her She's, she's supposed to deliver and it's just not coming, mm-hmm. which adds kind of a, another creepy fear to the movie. It's like, well, what happened to the baby? Yeah. <laughs> Is there something wrong here? <laughs> so, and then you've got John Lithgow's end of it where it's a bunch of science nerds knowing exactly what's going on and, 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 and together a radio. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's just kind of fascinating watching. Watching everybody that knows what's happening, not telling other people what's really happening. Yeah.
2: Well, and, and what is also interesting about that is that I think they do the rigging the radio together and all that just to feel useful. Like yeah. there's a sense of they need something to do or else they will go crazy. Or they will lose hope. It's just like, it is, it is something to keep them occupied and focused on while everything falls apart around them, which is another, again, these are all like psychologically speaking, these are all very typical human reactions to situations like this. Like, you know, there, there are the people who freak out. There are the people who really do try to take control of the situation. There are people who just try to give themselves something to do so they can make it through each. Moments without completely cracking. It's not a state of denial. It's just, it's a way for, it's, it's a coping mechanism. And I think that was presented really, really well.
0: There was a, there was a point right before the missiles hit where, uh, Eve, uh, the mother, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the daughter, Lori, comes down the stairs holding her wedding dress. And she goes down to the basement and he's like, where's your mother? She's upstairs and she's making the beds mm-hmm. like she's cleaning up the house. And he's like, we've got to get down. And she's like, "Nope, I'm making the bed. And he grabs her and she starts losing it uh, because I think it's really hitting her that this is it. Yeah. Um. And it, it, that's one of those scenes that I always think of because it's just like that's a very human thing to do, mm-hmm. because how do you. How do you act in those situations? You know, we were a couple of years ago, Rachel smelled smoke in the house. And it turns out one of the neighbors was burning something mm. at night. But we, so we were looking, we were looking in the attic, we were looking all over the place. And I was sitting in the house at one point and I stopped and I looked around. And I go, this could all be gone in like an hour. Mm. <laughs> and it was just this very sobering thought where, some people have like the exact opposite, where they're trying to deny it up until the last moment. Yeah. And you know, the the boy is caught in the you know he he he's blinded by the blast, and it's really interesting how they worked all of the things that they needed the audience to know about what would happen during a nuclear war into the characters. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't like a, like somebody talking like don't look into the blast cuz you could go blind no they just showed it. <laughs> yeah.
2: There's a lot of showing not telling and it's done very deftly and I think it's um that's credit I think to Meyer.
0: Yes. Um absolutely.
2: You know, I, it would have been interesting to see this under a different director or it, it might have been mishandled. Meyer um who like I said he directed Star Trek 2 right before this. That movie is a tight 2 hours and it is um there's not a lot of fat in that movie and and it also is very like he he knows how to handle a uh people who will devour scenery and b he knows how to deftly handle these big important scenes you know and and he does that um he does that here really really well um he He knows when to give the actors their moment to kind of breathe, but he also, the pacing is really good. And and I think it was, it was probably the network and it was probably the writers who said, okay, the nuclear explosion, the bombs goes off halfway through the movie. So like, it was very possible before he came on, that was there. And then he had to essentially direct around that. And um, I think he did a really good job. Because this this could be one of those movies that... um, And I've heard people say this as a criticism. People who are not that big fans of this movie say that it does get really boring after the the bomb goes off. But I think it's just as intriguing. Um, Some of the makeup is a little dated at this point. You know, everybody's hair starts falling out and this is the second movie I've seen Steve Gutenberg in where he gets some sort of like cancerous poisoning and don't tell her it's me. It's the opposite. He's recovering from it at the beginning of the movie. So he's all bald and patchy and then he gets better and becomes Lobo. Um, but, uh, but in this, it's like, you know, they, they start getting sick and some of the effects are, are there a little bit, you know, uh, a little bit old, but, at the same time, I, I didn't find this getting boring as it went on. Um, so I don't know why, why somebody would say that. I thought it was more intriguing because I really cared about these characters.
0: And also, you're watching society in this area deal with it. There's a scene where uh, Billy is walking along and he picks up this guy that uh, never says anything. And I don't know if he's just if he's got some kind of like traumatic brain injury or whatever. But they come upon a military truck giving supplies to some locals, and they say, "Okay, that's enough." And the locals are like, "No, you have more. We need more." And they overwhelm the
3: truck. Mm-hmm.
0: And it's just like it occurred to me. I was like, "Well, that would happen." Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's just you know you, how do you do order in this in this sort of. um in this sort of society, you know, how do you try to go from city town to town, basically where everybody in the town needs something and they're not going to let you leave. And, you know, he finally comes to a, uh, to, a to a place where like the guys writing down his symptoms. And I've no, and again, it's just something for these people to yeah. do because, no, there's nothing they can do for them. They're going to die.
3: Yeah. <laughs> they're going
0: to die of radiation poisoning at that point. Yeah,
2: yeah. And, and the something for people to do comes out of the fact that it's very likely that if they didn't have anything, they would probably harm themselves. And, yeah. You know, I, I it's not a, we need to give them something to do because they're going to go cause violence against other people or something. No, it's more like... That would contribute to despair, which would probably lead to suicides, which I can imagine they, now they didn't show any, really anything like that in the film. And I understand why it was a TV movie and it was already, it was already pretty bad, but I can imagine that's something that, that would happen, you know, among survivors that there were people who would either give up and just allow themselves to you know, waste away or, or who would take their own lives because it's just the, the old way that the immediate change of the situation becomes completely overwhelming.
0: Yeah. It's kind of interesting because uh, the other night I sat down for the first time in a long time and just watched a movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I tend to spend most of my time either like, we're watching the news or we're watching uh, stuff online yeah. or I'm reading or I'm doing what I'm doing now, which is either recording or editing a podcast. So it's very rare that I sit down and watch a movie and I watch this movie called Greenland, um, which was released last year uh, and it's uh, – or it was made last year. And it's Gerard Butler and Marina – God, I can't pronounce her last name. She was Leslie Thompson on Gotham. She was on Firefly. Uh, I
2: know who you're talking about. Um, Yeah, I know who you're talking about.
0: And it's basically, there's going to be this extinction level event. Mm -hmm. And he and his family are chosen to go basically to this shelter. It's kind of like what was going on in the movie Deep Impact. Yeah where they were going to go to a place that was going to shelter down and it had like you know people that could basically theoretically restart society mm-hmm. and when they're there they realize that they're not going to let their them on because their son has diabetes mm-hmm. it's like nobody and it was basically them trying to get to this place anyways huh. and the first part of this film feels kind of like that where you're just you're, you're, it, it does have a quasi-disaster movie feel to it because disaster films always have to set up the characters so you give a crap about yeah. them when everything goes down. I, Volcano is a terrible movie, mm-hmm. but I like the characters enough that I kind of care about what happens to them. Uh, not so with Dante's Peak, yeah. which tells you... You know the difference between Tommy Lee Jones and yeah. Pierce Brosnan. I think the, the, the day the day uh, after tomorrow was one that didn't
2: do this well. I fast forwarded through all. I literally fast forwarded through half the plot and just watched the the special effects. The yeah, destruction, yeah, destruction porn, porn yeah, because it didn't. It didn't. And it didn't set it up very well.
0: But once they get there, it's not a disaster mm-hmm. film because you said something at the beginning that I completely agree with. There is no heroic ending for this yeah. film there is no okay we we've survived this and now we're going to form our little society and we're going to survive no it's a bunch of separate people that are all going to die yeah and one of the most gripping shots of the back end of this film is at one point uh, the Dahlbergs are attending church and Lori starts bleeding from her crotch. <laughs> and, and so Steve Gutenberg's character takes her and the boy to like a hospital. And at one point he finds her in a gymnasium where they've just put a bunch of people. Yeah. And he's going to take her home. But it does this, this series of shots as it gets further and further up into the ceiling. And you realize that this, this, the gymnasium is covered stem to stern fra- with people that are dying. And all I can think of is they're all going to die there and they're going to rot there. And if society does somehow, you know, if humanity does somehow survive this, Hundreds of years in the future, they're going to be digging through that, and they're going to find this sarcophagus mm-hmm. of all of these dead bodies. And if a movie is making me think that, it's doing a really good job of what it's what it's trying to impress upon the viewer.
2: Yeah, you're talking – the shot you're talking about is very much the gone with the winds yes. um, – Yeah. The crane shot as it is and gone with the wind. And I think that was done on purpose too. That that's, they wanted you to recall that, but you're right. It is. It's this, this moment. And then the other shot is one of the final, I think it is the final shot of the movie. Um, Robart's sitting in the ruins of his house and just like the smallness of him and the other people who are there among just rubble pure rubble of what was their suburban neighborhood right outside of Kansas City. And that um it is it is a it is an impression of a shot because there's no real lines in those scenes. It's it's kind it's very, very quiet. And and again, it's that showing and not telling. They just let the moment speak through themselves. And considering how many people watching this were of neighborhoods that were like that. And that was another thing they did really, really well, that they tried their best to hit upon characters that were a fair cross-section of the population. You know, yeah, it was a little more overwhelmingly white than it was um, anybody else, even though Billy McCoy is like one of the few, um, you know, to their credit, they did have an African-American character who, you know, was more than just a Canon fodder supporting character. He actually had a storyline. But, you know, you have the farmland, you have the suburbs, and there are a lot of people watching this who are like that, and they're watching Jason Robards do that, and they're like, that could be my house. And so it's another thing of really hitting home at the end there. Laying it on thick in a few places, but again, I, I always... I always give TV movies a pass for that reason, you know?
0: Yeah, because... Really when you think about it, your typical TV movie is not there to break new mm-hmm. ground. It's not the it's there to fill airspace and sell ad and sell ad and revenue, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, when you think of it's not so much a thing now because of cable and especially now because of Netflix. But when we were growing up, the Sunday night movie, mm-hmm. the Tuesday night movie, you know, and it and it it was like, you know, you know, like she they had kidnapped her daughter <laughs> and now she's going to go find them. Or, you know, this is the reunion film of the six million dollar man and the violent yeah. woman. And, you know, roots changed things significantly in the seventies. And I really have to say, uh, if, if people are kind of more interested in the culture of those two decades, I cannot recommend the CNN miniseries, the seventies and the eighties hmm. enough, uh, because they're really well done. Um, they, really paint reagan in a positive light so i you know, some of and you would think you know at cnn they wouldn't do that but uh they, they kind of talked about this movie and 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 but when you think of television in the 70s and 80s you know there were three channels mm-hmm. and pbs You know, Jeff Foxworthy does the thing, is like, oh, the president's on. And you know, you're you're (laughs) screwed unless you you had cable and could go and you will you grew up without cable. So um I never knew a life without cable because my mother demanded that we have it. So (laughs) and growing up where we did, service electric cable TV, uh which was one of the nation's first big cable companies, was was something we had no matter where we moved. So but the uh, the fact that 100 million people watched this is both amazing and at the same time not surprising because yeah. what else were you going to Yeah that's watch
2: true and it, it it garnered a lot of pre buzz and you know we are in an age now of more niche television where you know where yeah. people are like everybody watches game of thrones I'm like no there's like um there's like a lot of people who did watch that show and, and it's, it's kind of funny to see the insular, the, the insular nature of TV fandom, especially because there are people who think it's un like can't fathom why a show like um, law and order SVU is that it's 20 something season or CSI is still on there's variations. Of CSI and CIS are still on the air, not realizing that they're still pulling down those numbers in, in ways like, you know, because because we we have gotten so used to our prestige and television and like, you know, the, the television event movie. You're right. It really isn't as isn't as prevalent. Um, I will make a quick recommendation. Um, the the book, Are You in the House Alone?, which is a TV movie compendium that was put out by um, edited by Amanda Reyes, who is one of the hosts of the made for TV mayhem podcast. Um, I got it for Christmas. It is a great book. Um, and, and I follow her on Twitter, and, and her, her, that podcast is really good. They, they do some really great. I've listened to their episodes about after school specials lately, and I'm like, this, it's just so much fun to listen to them talk TV movies and stuff. But,
0: but the fact that you had people like Jason mm-hmm. Romarts and John Lithgow and Joe Beth Williams, you know, in, in major parts of this mm-hmm. film. And then you had John Cullum, who's mainly a theater actor. Yeah. I mean, we know him mainly or because exposure. of exposure, exposure. Yeah. But he was—I mean, he was in the movie 1776 mm-hmm. as uh, one of the Carolina senators. He sings uh, molasses to rum to slaves, and like so, and and, and he does a, an introduction to this that I that that I found on YouTube, where he has his natural speaking voice, which is this very like educated Southern. It's it's like it's really weird to describe because he. Because in every role I've ever seen him, he's never used. Oh,
2: interesting.
0: Um, it's like when he's on Law and Order, he's got kind of a southern accent thing going. He and Barry Corbin were kind of circling each other through most Mm -hmm. of Northern Exposure. Uh, so, but, but he just he gives it as all, but it just like this had a big budget feel to it. It. The guy that directed Star Trek 2 directed this thing.
2: Yeah. (laughs) And they chose Cullum to do it because Cullum, being the farmer in the story, but he, he does have the appearance of somebody who is very, um, down to earth friendly, like a relatable type of character. To have him do that, the, the parent, parental discretion advised intro to the movie made a lot of sense. But, yeah, and I found the the production notes interesting and the fact that Meyer, the network, kept trying to mess with this movie and yeah. really to the point where Meyer quit and they had to beg him to come back because they realized, oh, we fucked up.
0: <laughs> yeah, we, we, no one else is going to do this. Uh, well, you know, the censors cutting things yeah. out. Um, the uh, the fact that they they went to Lawrence, Kansas and paid people $50 a day mm-hmm. To shave their heads and, and, and basically, you know, like break windows and stuff like that. The fact that, uh, Steve Gutenberg keeps trying to go back to Joplin just makes me think of Brad Douglas, uh, of the Spider-Man mm-hmm. crawlspace space. Cause, uh, that's where he's from. So it's just like, Oh no, Brad died. Yeah. <laughs> that makes me kind of sadder.
2: Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, the, the, this could have been that, you know, they took a lot of, A, they took a huge risk with this. Um, because it, it couldn't, they, they had a lot of trouble finding sponsors and things like that. Um, nowadays, sometimes with, I've seen TV movies or shows or specials like this, where it's sponsored by like one company and that company has paid an enormous amount of money, Um, to have maybe limited commercial interruption or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then they have like only their product is being shown or something. Um, but for the most part, yeah, they got them and then they, they, they had to handle this the way they did. They, they, this could have been in, in, this could have been very cheesy and it could have been very just, um, uh, you know it, it, compared to other movies, it's actually a little more gentle than, than a couple other movies we'll talk about in a little in a little while but um but it is still very brutal in in the way it handles, and it's still very straightforward um and uh um and I think it was in the in the viewpoint section of this when we we'll, we can we can start to segue into that I think it was Carl Sagan who was like who kind of his criticism of the movie was that like it it was too mild and that it would actually be much worse.
0: And the movie actually says yeah. that there's a thing at the end where it says, this is, this is a scenario. It's actually one of the better yeah. ones. And there, you know, if you, if you watch things about it, people are like Reagan watched it and he was deeply mm-hmm. affected. That did not stop him or his administration from using this and going, look, our current, uh, way of dealing with this is the right way. If we keep doing that, this won't happen. So it, it turned into one of those things where, because of course they did, they turned it to their own advantage.
3: Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Although apparently Nicholas Meyer did get a letter from Reagan years later saying that it did help change his mind, especially as he got later into the decade.
0: Um, well, I'm, I'm also going to point out that this movie aired two months or about a month and a half after. September 26, 1983, an early warning system of the Soviet Union reported a launch of an intercontinent, intercontinental ballistic missile. And this guy named Stanislav Petrov, who was just this officer of the Soviet air defenses, said, "No, this isn't this isn't a nuclear." And they were like, "They were like, no, no, we've got a launch, we've got a launch." And he kept tur- like saying, "No, no," and it turned out to be a glitch. Mm-hmm. But we came really close to all dying because of yeah. it yeah. So I'm wondering how much that played into mm. you know their their feelings about this film that it literally almost just happened.
2: Yeah, that's that's another that's a good thing to think about too, because this would have been already in production and ready to go by the time that happened.
0: Yeah, they were gonna have it come out in May, yeah. but the cuts that the network wanted pushed it to mm-hmm. November
2: yeah that's like that's a good point Because um, as you get when Gorbachev finally comes to power because this is also like um this is also the early 1980s, and between '80 80 and '85, between the death of Brezhnev and the, the the rise of Gorbachev, you have this revolving door of Soviet premiers. Like they can't seem to mm-hmm. stay in power because they keep dying, um, and that is that adds to instability within the Soviet Union. You know, that's where their economy their economy starts to go under. Um, you know, and then uh, it it'll be in '86 when Chernobyl happens, and that really does start to truly show how bad things were in that country because, you know, they were very good at putting up a smoke screen.
0: And, and when Reagan went and visited Russia, finally, mm-hmm. you know, somebody asked him, do you still believe these people are evil? And he said, no, like, like everybody who loves Reagan wants to just focus on him being a badass and saying the evil empire. Mm-hmm. They rarely talk about how things changed as the decade wore on. Yeah and how it became like you said clear that the the Soviet Union was it was all spit and baling wire with this nice little sheen but you know god chernobyl was one of those things where like they didn't even tell those people what was going yeah. on yeah
2: yeah and uh, somebody just recommended a book to me about that and I'm going to have to read it cuz um It is, and I still have to watch the HBO show, but that, again, that's another thing that, you know, as you get later in the decade, and we get more cooperation out of it, and and the cooperation that comes through Perestroika and Glass Notes is really out of necessity of survival, you know?
0: Yeah, it's just like, we we can't do things the old way.
2: Yeah, and even then, Gorbachev had had people who wanted him taken out. Because of what he was doing with that, even though he was doing his best to ensure the country's survival. He, he was not interested in dissolving the Soviet Union. He, he, he wanted no. the Soviet Union to survive. He just realized he couldn't do it under the system that they had. They needed to make those changes because or else they weren't going to survive. So and then there were there were various hardliner plots to to kill him et cetera. Um, in fact, it's like one of the major plot points of the final season of The Americans,
3: mm-hmm. which
2: is an outstanding show. If anybody if anybody listening has never seen it, I highly recommend it. Um, uh, but yeah, so after this we had because um, I think we've covered this pretty well. But we have a and this is really fascinating because a. The attention span required to sit through what essentially is about another hour to an hour and a half of, um, of, of talking, talking heads, heads, right? I mean, like, you know, we don't have the attention span for that in our culture now, but it was, a, it was about an hour, and an hour and a half of Viewpoint. Viewpoint was an occasional panel show. On ABC by ABC News that would cover certain issues and things like that. Ted Koppel was the narrator at that point. And, and, sorry, the anchor, <laughs> the moderator, 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 moderator. He was the anchor of Nightline at that anchor, point. Yeah, anchorator. We're yeah. He was the anchor of Nightline. Nightline had been on for about four years at that point, and uh, the panel was um, Carl Sagan. Uh, host of uh, the cosmos uh, series and and an astrophysicist Ailey Wiesel uh, the author of nights uh, night Holocaust survivor human rights advocates uh, Brent Scowcroft who was the air was an Air Force general and he was the former national security advisor under Ford and then would later be the national security advisor under uh, George HW Bush William F Buckley jr. famous conservative pundit and then uh Robert McNamara, former Secretary of Defense under Kennedy and Johnson. And Henry Kissinger, former Secretary of State.
0: Henry Kissinger was was part of the (laughs) battle. uh, (laughs) Henry Kissinger. Henry Kissinger. That's a really good Henry Kissinger impression. Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> and I was, that. I just
2: pulled that up. And, and I'm being flipped where I was telling you before, and Henry Kissinger, you know, former Secretary of State under Nixon, former National Security Advisor as well. Um, and I was being being kind of flippant before that, but I was watching this. And, and going into this, I knew that Buckley was on there. I knew that Sagan had been on there. But I didn't know that it was like a large panel. And I literally was sitting in my classroom watching this on my planning period. And I had this reaction when I saw Kissinger and the McNair and I was I was like oh this asshole! <laughs> I was just like
0: you know, and it's funny because all I wanted was either Dylan Baker or um, God, what is that guy's? He was he was also in Thirteen Days, but he played uh, God the, the the main the guy played Kennedy Bruce Greenwood? in Thirteen Days. Yeah. Bruce Greenwood yeah. played Mac MacManera Mac yeah. in the Tom Hanks movie The Post. Movie, uh, the yeah. Post. And uh and the only thing the main reason of that is our mutual friend Rob Kelly, I pointed that out to him, he goes, He's playing the he's trying to play the
3: entire cabinet.
0: <laughs> um But Robert McNamara during this whole thing is basically trying to play the sane one. But you pointed it out before we started recording. This is Robert <laughs>
2: Like no. Southeast Asia would like to have a word with you, sir. Yeah, it's
0: just like, it'd basically be like Sean Hannity. Like, no, not Sean Hannity. Um, Well, Colin Powell actually. Um, stuff. I would say like but Rumsfeld if, or Wolfowitz. Yeah, it would be like Rumsfeld coming out and going, guys, you know, we, we've got to have more transparency with the government and really pay attention to the intelligence. (laughs) And it's just like, are you kidding me?
3: (laughs) Yeah.
0: And I I will
2: point out, before they started the panel, um, Koppel interviewed um, Dwight Schultz, who I think was the Secretary of State at the time. And there are two things that are talked about. Nuclear reduction, which Mm -hmm. is exactly what it seems, and deterrence, which is a fancy political term for arms buildup, To stop war, mutually assured destruction, essentially, you know.
0: Basically, if we have it and they have it, nothing's going to happen because we know what's going to happen at the end of that, not realizing that our enemy literally burned their freaking country so that Germany could yeah. get it.
2: Yeah, yeah. And and not only that, um, you know, again, they didn't even really mention glitches or anything like that, like you were talking about. The, the other thing they did mention was that, you know, we have all these, if we have all the nukes, it's going to deter other countries from getting, from getting, like, their one bomb. You know, like, it's, it's, yeah. like smaller countries aren't going to want to do this because they know how the power we have, which is kind of bullshit too but
0: yeah and and, and, and the, the main one of my main takeaways from watching this is how different the world is now because everyone was allowed to speak mm-hmm. at one point Buckley seemed to want to jump in but let me say how awesome Ted Koffel is as a moderator this man was like a ninja like, he wasn't having any of it. He was keeping on time, and he was shutting people down. And, like, the first guy, because they took questions from mm-hmm. the audience, and the guy stands up and he starts repeating what everybody says. And Koppel goes, if we do this all night, you know, we're going to be here all night. So don't tell us what we heard. Just ask your question.
2: Well, and I, I think with, with Buckley, because uh, – <laughs> You messaged me. He's he's so fucking insufferable. And he, and, and it's, it's, it's the accent because he has that mid-Atlantic New England. I keep picturing Jack Black responding to that guy in uh, high fidelity going, bye bye. Bye -bye. You know, and it it isn't totally what he's doing there. And he's so insufferable. But I mean, to his credit, he's very good at what he does. But I think. But oh, he yeah. had a reputation by then, and I think Koppel knew that going in. He's like, no, 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 you're not gonna fuck with me here. You know, I'm, I'm in charge here, because Buckley could have easily taken control of the entire thing. And, and Koppel, Coppel was the perfect person to do that, because he didn't need to be cordial. He needed to be blunt, and he is blunt where he needs to be. Um. The thing about, uh,
0: mess, Mixing up my panelists. The, the thing about um, Buckley is that Buckley hit upon something that I, I've completely forgotten about. A, a couple different things. One, how jingoistic we were in the mm-hmm. eighties as as the United yeah. States. I mean, people who are listening to this in other countries may may not understand it. Like. The thing I love about England is that there are people in England that love England, but most of England seems to have, like, you know, the the, the Andrew Leyland, like, piss off kind of attitude towards its government. But in the 80s, we were all, like, in school and uh, in the movies and the music and all that. Like, if you were a little kid in the 80s, you could get really swept Mm -hmm. up in the jingoism of it. But there was also this prevalent attitude that we had to maintain the United States' place of power in the world in any, any suggestion of arms reduction or any suggestion that we may not want to, that we may want to do away with our nuclear weapons. The Buckleys of the world were like, or of this country were like, no, no, we can't do that. We have to make yeah. – And it was that it was that arrogance yeah. of 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 knowing, you know, feeling how I feel about the, my country now, like the arrogance of this asshole. Yeah.
2: Well, and part of that was part of the what what's become – comes to be known as the Reagan Revolution. The the because when Reagan gets elected, we are at a low point mm-hmm. because of the Iranian hostage crisis and because of the Soviets in Afghanistan and stuff like that. So by the time you hit 83, this is toward the end of his first term, um, the economy is st- Finally, starting to pick up a little bit because you know Reagan came in. We were in a recession. There was another recession while he was in there. Things start to pick yeah. up as you get into eighty four, and then by the time you hit the mid nineteen eighties, we are in a boom of an economy, which is a bubble economy. But you know, there's a whole story behind that. But you're right. It is. It's like they, they pile on the, the 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 jingoism to a lot of movies, and you see this in movies too. Like, and we grew up with a lot of it and we grew up with you know with with a lot of that and and um, and and there was there was almost like a blowback against the carter years
0: yeah because carter was was seen as a failure uh and and again people don't people think that you know like reagan came in and immediately everything got better he put out his economic theory they enacted it and it didn't do what it was supposed to yeah. do 82 and 83 was really yeah. bad for yeah. Reagan as president. But then someone tried to shoot mm-hmm. him and that garnered that got like some goodwill, you know, under it. And I know there are people out there listening to this right now that are like, God, these two bleeding liberals <laughs> are just bashing on Reagan. I'm not because I, I, I firmly believe that while his his policies were terrible uh, and he was kind of an awful person in certain ways. He also seemed to be one of those people that kind of was like a softy almost. <laughs> so, you know, it's just like I understand there's a human being under there. I also understand that I disagree with everything. About
2: there's, him. there's, um, uh, you know, th- there's a lot to look at and examine and, and take apart because, uh, especially because of the fact that he was um president for the entire decade. More or less, you know, he yeah. he went he left office in the beginning of '89.
0: His administration theoretically continued forward in '88 and '89 because he wasn't out. You know, he came in mm-hmm. in '81. He was out yeah, in '89.
2: Bush, Bush was elected. And,
0: but the, yeah, 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 that yeah. was my point: is that Bush takes yeah. over, and he was his vice yeah. president. Yeah. So, so so
2: but but it's it, it isn't he, he is somebody that you you need to look at from from many angles because there's. Foreign policy Reagan, there's economic policy Reagan, there's social policy Reagan, and there's, um, there's common threads running through it, and then there's different ways to, you know, there's different, there's, there's different levels of appreciation and then outright, uh, disdain that I have in some, in some regard. Um, and the, the social policy tends to be more of the disdain, you know, and things like that, but, but we are f- focusing more on the foreign policy here, which, yeah. Was successful and so, and the credit where the credit is due, you know, you had somebody who, um, was really deft at managing those relations. Whereas, um, Carter to his credit. Is a good diplomat. Carter as a president, at least the impression I get from reading and, and watching things about him was essentially in over his head. And, and, and yeah. for years, conservative pundits tried to make paint him out as being something that he was not, you know, as if because they just needed somebody to smack around. Um, cause they didn't have a democratic president for the better part of a decade. And then they had Clinton. So whose wife they could smack around for 20 years, but.
0: But oh, like they like they didn't. (laughs) Oh yeah,
2: but like but it but it was just
3: your your point. But
2: but with with Carter Carter's legacy has been solidified through what he did after his his time in office, Mm -hmm. and, and he found his strength. Reagan Reagan's time in office was his legacy, and and we look at this and we see we see a policy that did change over the course of eight years because it needed to, and that we can debate. And, and this is a good debate on the merits in this, in this show of whether or not they were doing the right thing. You know, Buckley, <laughs> Buckley comes out of the gate with what has become a like mad libs style talking point for conservative punditry yep. of the, well, this was subjective and political. Dude, it's a show about a nuclear holocaust. It can't exactly be objective.
0: Yeah, it's, like, it's one of those, it's one of those lines of argument that he's attacking it, not for what it is, but for how he can make
2: it. Yeah, appear. yeah. And, and he, he does it. And I just, I saw that and I was like, you almost pulled it off, but I'm watching this with the hindsight of almost 40 years and 20 of those years spent. I don't even watch cable news. But it's unavoidable in the yelling and the spinning and the spinning and the yelling of the, this isn't not objective. You know, it's, and you're just like, it's not objective because you don't agree with it.
0: (laughs) The modern day equivalent is certain conservative pundits citing one article saying that a certain percentage of audience turned off Mm -hmm. The, I almost said the Falcon and the Snowman. Falcon and the Winter (laughs) Soldier. Soldier. Uh, When there was a scene with Sam being approached by some police officers. And they're like, yeah, 70% of the audience left. And it's just like, no. And it's just, you're you're making, you know, a a mountain out of a molehill here for your own political game. Buckley was doing, that was Buckley's role Mm -hmm. in all this. He was the upper class conservative snob who i think was brought either either he was brought in and they're like we need sagan or they had sagan so we need buckley
2: <laughs> he they were they needed they had them in there for balance to balance each other out they had mcnamara and um scowcroft and kissinger in there for the um uh, the the official angle essentially you know these are people with the experience. Yeah
0: basically to have people who were in a position to look at the the intelligence yeah. and yeah. not tell us what the intelligence was but to basically say from yeah. from the perspective we didn't get in the movie that yeah. we were talking Yeah and,
2: and about. Faisal is there from a human a human rights activist aspect. Because Sagan Sagan is there for a more scientific aspect of it. I felt that Rizal was wasted, but he was drowned out by the other voices. Like, there was just too many people in that kitchen. Um, although he did...
0: But he had one of the best lines of mm-hmm. the whole thing, where he's like, the entire world is now Jewish.
2: Yes, and he... And I thought that was yes. And he expresses the fears we have. And that's really, really important. And, and, and I, and, and it, I think it hit with me mainly because just to peel back the curtain and plug my other show, Stella and I recently covered night on required reading. So I've been, you know, I, prior to watching this, I had read his book and ta- spent about an hour and a half, two hours talking with her about the Holocaust and everything. And when he said that, I was just like, yes. And, and, um, and and he was getting at the very real fears of people who are facing down their own destruction, which is something mm-hmm. he gets across in his books in a very in a very very good way. And I think that I think it like I said it was a very well put together panel. And like you said, Copple knew exactly how to run that show.
0: Yeah, it, it was just like you don't see that now because mm-hmm. I do watch a lot of cable news because. We're... I'm trying to keep up with what's going on. And I can't lie. I, I, you know, a lot of people are going to be like, Oh, I can't believe that. Um, I, we watch mm-hmm. CNN, uh, and it's mainly because I can't stand MSNBC. I, you see, I, I don't,
2: I, God, I haven't watched MSNBC in years. You know, I don't, I haven't watched any of the, the big three. I'll, I, I tend to read more than I watch.
3: Yeah.
0: And I'm not watching no. Fox News. And I'm definitely watching Newsmax or OAN, Uh, and we watch The Young Turks Mm -hmm. as well, which is more of a progressive uh, online news outlet. Uh, But it's just I can't stand watching panel shows because it's just people yelling at each other. And yes, that gets ratings, and yes, that gets the audience engaged. And then it, but the points that they're talking about get lost in the mm-hmm. theater. And I was just fascinated that there was a point where that wasn't the case. And people just sat down and talked. And yes, Sagan and Buckley could not agree to quote Bill Maxwell from The Greatest American Hero Pilot on how to make Kool-Aid. <laughs> but both of their viewpoints were expressed. Yeah. And allowed to, you know, it's like uh, um, Sagan has the best line of the whole thing. He says, imagine a room awash and gasoline. And there are two implacable enemies in that room. One of them has 9,000 matches, the other 7,000 matches. Each of them is concerned about who's ahead and who's stronger. And it's just like, and it was Sagan, he yeah. do this. But he just put it in the simplest, for a man that's a genius, he could make complicated concepts sound really mm. simple.
2: <laughs> yeah, because I think that's one of the things about about this when like we were saying as little kids we it was one of those things we were scared of and heard about but almost didn't fully grasp and I think a lot of our culture didn't fully grasp of the magnitude at which we had the ability to destroy ourselves and there was and, and we were back onto a Doomsday clock scenario of this is only a matter of time before this happens. You know, and there's a whole subgenre of post apocalyptic things. You know, Mad Max, of course, the Terminator movies, um, you know, yeah. stuff like that. But then there is this, this particular subgenre came, came through in a big way right around this time because, of the fact that people were legitimately frightened that this, that it was gonna happen and they hadn't been that way since probably the sixties. When you had you know the, the early 1960s and things had kind of thawed out a little bit um, because of detente, you know, detente ended in the late 70s with the Russians invading Afghanistan, you know, um, but yeah. detente was like you know the most of the 70s and you didn't have as much of a fear of these things. But yeah, so so we're gonna uh, yeah anything else to say on this viewpoint, especially I think you you had a great point to end it on. And I wanted to go into our lightning round of various nuclear holocaust films.
0: No, I don't I don't have anything else to add to it. I it's on YouTube Mm -hmm. and and I suggest people watch it. Also, just for lulls, watch the crowd and their how they're dressed and listen to their questions because it's a really good cross section of white America.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it is. And and a couple of things are brought up, just to add a couple things. One, somebody does bring up what would become the Star Wars program. And then uh-huh. another person does bring up something that would become really, really important in the 90s and into the 2000s, which is the concept of nuclear proliferation. Because, um, yeah. that after the fall of the Soviet Union, you did have a lot of people who were concerned with, well, we have like missiles out because they weren't all in Russia. They were like in Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan and these Turkmenistan, like a lot of these countries that were all the way out, you know, in you know, in, in kind of the, the middle of nowhere that we're not as economically stable as, say, Mother Russia. And it's like, well, can a, Al- a Hamas or an Al-Qaeda or somebody get their hands on a nuke? And this was, that was a real concern and, and a valid concern for U.S. foreign policy and intelligence and, policy and, for years. And
0: what replaced World War Three as the the, like, things for, like, um, action mm-hmm. movies like for political yeah. thrillers, it's like that's the like broken Yeah, era. somebody's got a news <laughs> like, yeah.
2: yeah. And it was, it was, I found it interesting because Sarcroft Sur- did have this comment about the unseen effects of deterrence, you know, that the, he was trying to advocate for it. He was saying, like, there's a lot that we do that you don't see, and it was a valid point as well because one of the things we became obsessed with, especially after 9 11, were the optics of safety that actually don't make us safer. They just give us an artificial feeling of safety. And, um, so he was trying to bring up that idea that just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not happening. And, um, and I don't know if he was particularly effective in his point there, at least getting it across to the audience, but, but yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, um, I, I'd written down a bunch, um, were a few there was this kind of like and, and i'm not covering all of them i was just trying to figure out the ones that i've seen or noticed i didn't want to mention uh, so just kind of various tv movies or tv shows or, or other things that that dealt with this we do need to link this to superman um and i mentioned superman issue 408 which has this great cover of like you know the nuclear war happened and i was i couldn't stop it and it's this issue where superman's having nightmares about nuclear war and then in the end, essentially decides that the countries have to hash it out themselves because he can't play like a yep. nursemaid or, or mother hen to them, which, and, and forgive me if I'm being off base here, seems to be the complete opposite of what happens in Superman 4.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's just like two, two different concepts of the same thing yeah. because, uh, with a writer that understands that Superman can't solve this problem and another writer going, well, what if he yeah. does? And, uh, Apparently it goes decently unless you cut the budget in half. So, but no, that that issue is interesting because it comes it's like it's like in the end run of the of the pre-crisis yes. era. So, I'm wondering if that was something that was written like years earlier and they were finally putting it in there, but it wasn't one of the best of DC mm-hmm. digests uh the next year. Yeah. So, apparently it it yeah. had something. it's going in for the it.
2: Superman in the 80s trade as well. Um, because that, that's where I have it from. And Paul Kupperberg was the writer, but from a plot by Ed Hannigan and uh Kurt Swan and Al Williamson on art. And I actually liked the combination of Kurt Swan and Al Williamson.
0: Yeah, it yeah. wasn't that bad. I mean, it was it, like the creepiest part of it is that it just basically is Clark, at the very beginning, Clark's like going to work and the missiles yeah. hit and he can't stop it. And this little girl Like just oh god, it's such a creepy shot and then he wakes up screaming. Uh and and it's it's funny because there's this there's this neat little um thing done in the story where he's watching a bunch of kids dealing with a bad situation and that's what twigs him to say, Oh wait, I've gotta let these people work it out themselves. So but yeah, I mean it's I did not read that as a kid. I read that as a yeah, adult. I read so. it a
2: couple of years ago when I found this uh, the Superman in the eighties trade on the discount trade bin at my LCS. I've got a few big ones. I want to start with kind of the uh, the the minor ones and kind of work up there. Um, when the wind blows was something you mentioned in our pre-show. I have not seen yes. that. So describe that to, to to the audience here because I think it, it sounds it, like a really interesting movie.
0: It's an animated film based on a, a comic uh done by the guy that did the snowman, which is an animated film that looks kind of stop motion. And it's just this 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 elderly British couple that survive the first blast and then slowly die through the rest of the film. Uh but it's animated and it's really upsetting. Hmm. Uh more upsetting than this movie, I would say, uh in, in all honesty, because it just like you get to a point where you're like, would you just die, please? <laughs> And it's not like you hate them; you just want their suffering to stop, and it doesn't. Yeah. (laughs) And it's got an opening song uh, by David Bowie. So, but it's 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 if you guys can get your hands on it, uh, and you want to not feel good about life for a little while, I I I will recommend it because it talks about it's it's even more like humanistic than the day after. Cause you're just dealing with these two people who live out in kind of the country and how they are, they believe what the government, the, 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 the husband believes what the government is telling him and the wife believes in her mm-hmm. husband. And they spend part of it like hidden under mattresses and then they come out and then they start realizing, Oh, we can get water from the rainwater. And you're like, no, don't do that. <laughs> it's all radioactive, and and one of the most disturbing parts of the movie. And it's just this throwaway line where the woman's like, "I went to the bathroom this morning, and there was blood in it." And you realize, oh no. So yeah, it's 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 mm. a heavy movie.
2: Yeah, there and there's um, it's interesting that you mentioned like you know how it's just them because the, the, one of the things about the day after, the day after, does have a fair amount of scope to it. So another movie that was, that was out, um, around that time, in 1983, um, that was produced by PBS, I think it was for like American Playhouse or, or American Masterpiece or theater, theater or something like that. Um and got a theatrical release and Jane Alexander was actually nominated for a, an, a, a leading actress Oscar for this was Testament. And um this one takes place um it's it's in a like a suburb of San Francisco and it's completely entirely within this town, focusing on her and her family. Her husband's played by William Devane, who's in the movie for all of like, uh, 10 minutes or whatever, um, uh, because he is, um, he's working in San Francisco and the bomb, you know, the missiles hit and he, he was at work when it happened. So like for all, half the movie, they're like waiting for him to see whether or not he's actually, ever going to make it home. And, um, you know, you have his. <clears throat> She's got three kids, the youngest of which is played by like a four year old Lucas Haas, um, because it's a couple of years before Witness. And, um, it is this intimate movie that is really, really sad, uh, because it is one of those movies where just everybody dies. <laughs> Mako's in it, um, and, um, and, and it is one of those things where like, there's no nuclear footage or anything. The blast is just basically they, um, they show it from the perspective of a living room window and it's like a really, really bright flash. And you realize something is happening when Sesame Street gets preempted by like the emergency broadcast system or something. Again, it's just very, very realistic. Everybody's going about their days and all of a sudden like boom, this happens. And, um, at one point, like they're eating breakfast and Lucas character character's like, the milk tastes funny. And like they noticed sand and certain things. So like the, the, little telltale signs of things are not going very well. And there's a really early roles for Kevin Costner and Rebecca De Mornay as this young, like teenage couple who were, uh, who eventually like leave the town to find other people. And they've got the old neighbor who's got the ham radio operator going back to our pump up the volume <laughs> conversation. Yeah. And he's trying to get people. And it's, it becomes more and more desperate and like one by one the kids die like there's a scene in that where the it still gets to me the daughter's about 15 or so and she has this conversation um with her mother about like um what having... She uses the phrase make love, which I have to excuse because it was the early 80s, but she's basically what's having sex is like because she was a virgin. And you're getting the sense that she's talking to her mother that she knows she's dying. And then they switch to a thing where her mother seems to be like doing something with sheets, like ripping them up. And then they pan over and her daughter's body is on the bed wrapped up in a, in a shroud. And you're like, holy shit. Like, it's just... It's a movie that... That movie I watched a while ago and it still sticks with me as far as like how sad it is. Um, and, and just kind of watch things just kind of deteriorate in a very slow, quiet way. Um, among, among this, this woman or family, like where she, by the end, she's ready to just do them to herself in, um, you know, so, but it's that, that is available on Amazon. Have you ever seen that one?
0: Yes, actually I have. Um, I watched it, it was mm-hmm. on HBO at one point. And I remember, I don't remember much of it, um, cause I was, again, I was surprised that, uh, it must have been like a day in the summer mm. and I was home. <laughs> so there wasn't anybody to stop me. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I remember, I remember the, uh, the, 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 the breakfast cereal thing, uh, of them talking about that. And you're right. It's, 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 it's a slow yeah. burn of a film. No pun intended there.
2: Um, directed by a woman, by the way, and I remember the name of the director, but she uh, – and, and you can kind of – I hate to – you know, this sounds like totally sexist to say this. You can tell. Um, yeah, and I think out. And I watched a uh, – uh, like I said, it, you might be able to find it on, on a streaming service here and there. It pops up every once in a while. And um, on YouTube, there was a uh, – somebody had uploaded the special feature – that was part of the, like, DVD release that it got, Um and they had, like, kind of a little cast reunion or, like, one of those little... Uh Interview things, you know, where they interview the cast years later and they're in their thirties and stuff. And I think it was Jane Alexander says it was a movie about like doing laundry or something. Because and I was thinking, yeah, she's always doing laundry in the movie and stuff like that. But again, we go back to what we were talking about in the day after about like the things you do to keep yourself occupied, um, and 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 that's one of those things where like your home you're doing these things at one point like the kids have like their christmas pageant because it's like we might as well put it on but everybody in the room is like crying because like oh my god uh lynn Littman was the name of the director all right next one i know you you said you hadn't seen this uh it does pop up on streaming services the streaming service canopy had it or may still have it uh, threads this was a BBC production from about the around the same time I think it dropped in 1984 they've only shown it a couple of times very similar scenario to the day after here's a bunch of people in um, in a working-class town in like Thatcher's England near a defense NATO site or whatever, and it gets hit. And um, the the thing that I found um, interesting is that you have, you do have some government stuff going on in that you have like uh, several characters who are the town officials who are in a bunker and they're supposed to be planning out everything, but they have no way of reaching anybody on the outside. And there's a lot of bickering back and forth between them. The main character is essentially this one girl who gets knocked up at the beginning of the movie by her boyfriend and then she's pregnant throughout the whole nuclear holocaust and she has the baby and the the baby goes on to grow up and stuff but her she's mentally stunted and Basically goes forward for the better part of like I think it ends like 15 to 20 years after the nuclear war and they intersperse like almost documentary style little sort of educational film bits about it like you know where they will have something um, flash across the screen about statistics or something or there might be a narration about it and it is like. It's just, it leaves you feeling raw at the end because there's like, if you thought there was no hope at the end of the day after, this is just like, put your head between your legs and kiss your ass goodbye. (laughs) Lack of hope. It is just, it is, it is gutting. And, um, and it's, and and I always remember that last like quarter of it and they keep going forward and they keep going forward and they're like, you know, humanity's trying to hold on, but at one point they can farm like simple crops, but they all have to wear like, like those, those mad mask sort of goggles and protective things because the ozone layer has been completely like gone and the sun's ultraviolet rays are terrible. And um yeah, so it's, it's a, it's a really harrowing movie, but it's very, very good. Another movie out around the same time, countdown to looking glass. Um I think we both watched this. Yeah. This is interesting. This is a Canadian film. It is. Scott mm-hmm. Glenn is probably the most, no, um, uh, noticeable or recognizable person, and he plays a, a on-the-scene reporter. And this is done mostly through here's a bunch of the news clips that are happening as we are getting closer and closer and closer to nuclear war. I think it ends with the emergency broadcast system taking over. And the guy who played the lead anchor, I believe, was a Canadian news anchor that they deliberately hired to play this guy because it would give it some credibility. Um. Oh, and the other recognizable guy is fucking Newt Gingrich, but <laughs> it was in it really briefly. Yeah,
0: I was just like, you know, you... I'm sure this was a big deal in the 80s. You l- yeah. lost a lot of things yeah. by 1998
2: on that. This was interesting, though. I, it, it's, it's badly acted in a few parts. It's a little clunky in a few parts, but overall...
3: Yeah, it's shot on video.
2: So you can kind of see the budget, the, the, the purse strings a little bit. But, um, yeah, this whole conflict in like the Gulf of Oman or the, or Yemen or something that, where the, the, there's a lot of different firing at each other. And then by the end, they're starting to launch like, you know, short range and mid range missiles at one another. And it's getting worse and worse and worse as things go on. And, uh, yeah, what did you think of it?
0: Uh, I watched this a bunch of times mm. when I was a kid because it was on HBO mm. a lot, and I was just con- I was fascinated by this concept of looking glass, which is the plane the president gets yeah. on basically. Uh, and when you watch it as an adult, there's like a lot of like people having affairs, and it's just like really dramatic because mm. because it's it's presented like a newscast, and then they have these little interstitials. And at one point, Michael Murphy's character slips his reporter girlfriend, like information, like, look, today, yesterday, there were a bunch of tanks on the border of Iran and Russia. They're not there now. That's significant. <laughs> so, and, and it ends with a reporter basically talking to the camera as a looking glass is taking off yeah. behind her. And it's like, oh wow, it was just, it was just a really effective movie in that way. Cause again, they're talking, they're doing different scenarios. And it always seemed like most of the scenarios that these movies put forward was something happened in the Eastern mm-hmm. Bloc. Uh, James Lilacs, as a columnist out of Minnesota and had a, had, uh, I think he still does episodes every once in a while, a show no. called The Diner, where he talks about like, like everything, like we were just, Convinced that, you know, something's going to happen and they're going to overrun the barracks and that, that's going to end up being nuclear war, basically in Germany, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. in East Germany. So it's like one of those things where this one was starting in the Gulf.
2: Yeah. Um, you know, which in the Middle East, tensions in the Middle East had been happening for years by then, but, ever. But, um, that was pretty prescient too because the, toward the middle of the, toward the end of the 91, or toward the end of nineteen ninety like you know the the Persian Gulf really does become the focal point of u s foreign policy, so
3: mm-hmm. yeah,
2: um, yeah, it's just thinking about it like thinking of like movies like Red Dawn and stuff like that it is like when you hear about this like you know the yeah, tensions in what is like West and East Germany they like to they like to use yeah. a lot um Another one I know. Th- I know we've both seen this, and and um, and, and uh it, it's a it is a kind of a cult movie at this point. Miracle Mile with Anthony Edwards.
0: Yeah, the movie that is directly responsible for me when they were a thing, being nervous as hell whenever <laughs> a payphone would ring, because the movie is about um, Anthony Edwards has like this fantastic date with Mary mm-hmm. Winningham. Uh, and then he, like, picks up a ringing payphone, and it's the guy in a silo going, we just launched. We just launched. He thought he was calling his parents. And then they catch him. And so the rest of the movie is Anthony Edwards, one, trying to get word out about this, and two, trying to get back with Mayor Winningham. And... He runs into a diner, and Denise Crosby is some like government yeah. official, or
2: like big, big <laughs> with businesswoman. She, she has a Zach Morris cell phone with her.
0: Yes, so it, it's it's a it's 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 a really good movie with a really down yeah line. yeah because
2: it, it turns on a dime like you don't know what's going to happen because the first half of this movie is like this little romantic comedy. And, um, and then it just completely turns. And then, yeah, it's just like everything erupts into total chaos by the end of the film. Um, the diner is filled with these weird characters. So there's like a little bit of like weird surrealist stuff in there. Um, from what I understand, it was a movie that was written. It, it came out in 89, but it was written back in yes. like 78, 79. And it s- sat in development hell for years to the point where the director, I think, then ended up like, Partially self-financing it so he could finally get it made, um, and that's why it. it cause he really did not change anything about the script from when it was written in the late seventies, early eighties. Um, you know, so it was one of the last of that sort of kind of movie. Um, it didn't do very well at the box office, but I know it, it got its fair share of video and, and cable play.
0: There's a great part at the end where they're looking for a helicopter pilot, and they get like this gym guy. Mm-hmm. He's like, I have to wait for somebody and this dude's boyfriend comes out. And it's just like Well that's progressive. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But then there's there's a couple of really good scenes where like, you know, basically traffic in LA is stopped and everybody's like fighting with each other and, and it's just uh yeah, things descended to chaos really well and, and um
0: and I think there's a guy on the roof just waiting for the missiles yeah. to
2: come in. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is a sort of we're all going to go crazy, and and um you know and and it ends with you know it, of course it's it's a, much like these it, it does not end well. Um and then the last one which you recommended to me and I finally watched and really which was, was the last of these movies there really ha- um was yes. an HBO movie from about I think it was 1990 called Dawn's Early Light with Powers Booth. Uh, Rebecca DeMornay, um, Rip Torn, I think, uh, Martin.
0: Rip Torn and, is in it. And, and Martin Landau, because
2: Martin Landau plays the president.
0: Yeah, James Earl, James Earl Jones.
2: Jones, who, who played, um, they did a little bit of a callback for him because James Earl Jones, of course, is in, um, is on the B 52 in Dr. Strangelove. So. Okay.
0: So. Yeah, and he's he's one of the 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 people like the the guy at the beginning of um
3: yeah the day after yeah. actually yeah and th-
0: and
2: this is this is ahead. purely a military and political version of the day after essentially like this is what are what are the people who are in charge of this doing when this is starting to escalate is really really good.
0: And Rip Torn plays, uh, Colonel mm. Fargo, who is like this total hawk. Is, is he a yes. hawk?
2: Because he, yeah, he's, he's manipulated. Because Darren McGavin plays like the Secretary of the Interior. And.
0: Yeah, because they lose Martin Landau yeah. at one point. And so they need somebody acting mm. as president. And Rip Torn is basically trying to convince. Darren, McGavin. uh, Darren McGavin's character to, you know, no, we need to launch. We need to launch everything right now or we're yeah. going to die. And there's another naval official who is just completely yeah. against this uh, and almost takes the football with him. It's a really subtle scene. But you also have Powers Booth and Rebecca Mornay who are mm-hmm. having an affair. But they're pilots of one of the bombers. And they actually do something that I don't know would work, but they're being chased by Russian fighters, so they're coming upon a mountain so right before they go over the mountain, they drop their one of their bombs and it takes out the planes and the mountain takes the brunt mm-hmm. of the of the impact it's it's one of these it's it's a low level nuclear exchange yeah. uh but yeah, it's there's a really great scene where the where, you know, we've been in the White House and he finally gets out, but it's too late because he get they get kind of knocked down. But they show like the room he was in, and then they show the giant flash of light and the room just get destroyed. Yeah,
2: yeah. and and it's it's one of the really cool things about it is that it has a number of people who are in the military being portrayed as people who will gladly follow orders because this we're trained to do, but then have that ethical dilemma that comes with following orders in a situation like this, because there are like pilots of planes without giving away what the last scene of the movie, there are pilots and planes who are like, Are we? Should we really be doing this? You know, and 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 there's a really and and the president, you know, Landau's trying to get through to somebody because he's still alive, and there, you know, so there's a there's a power struggle that goes on in the middle of the movie, and it's pretty intriguing. Um, I always Mm love seeing Powers Booth in just about anything. Um, you know, I was always love him as the like the captain who's had enough of everybody's shit in rapid fire but um yep. he i've been recently watching season 3 of agents of shield and he's the big bad in that and he's be, he, and, and to be honest though he's playing like the michael ironside role you know, of, like of of the kind of billionaire guy who's the actually the villain and stuff like that you know and i can totally see michael ironside in that role and uh but no powers booth is always good and stuff and but rebecca Mornay is good in this as well and it is it, it's an underrated movie i it was not something i'd i'd heard of uh, prior to you mentioning it
0: yeah it's it's it was one it was on hbo it was a big hbo mm-hmm. movie uh and this was like i said i was a teenager so it was 1990 so i'm about like 14 years old and still scared about it but still watching mm-hmm. the movie
2: <laughs> yeah and this is the beginning of that hbo era where they would start really getting into the prestige tv movies because uh barbarians mm-hmm. the gate came out around the same time and then and the
0: which is yeah, really and, good. and the
2: band played on was about a year or two after that. Um
0: Which is about 30 minutes of plot and like another hour of <laughs> Matthew Modine staring at something pensively while sad music plays That's, in the have, background. Have you, uh,
2: that is uh, – now. I've read the book. Uh, I read the book years after I saw the movie. I saw the movie when they ran on it – on NBC ran it, Um and then I rented it. And um, I read the book years later, and that book is – dense it's a hard book to adapt so that to their credit they did a really good job (laughs) of trying to adapt randy schultz's book because that book is extensive and uh and and i read um but anyway but but with this um yeah it's it's hard to say hey i enjoyed talking about the end of the world with you
0: yeah but But if I'm going to talk about the end of the
2: world? Well, yeah. And the reason I actually asked you on is because you had mentioned the day after in an old episode of um, either views or from crisis to crisis or something, Um, you know, and at at some point I remember it was years ago. So like, this is the memory I have for these things. And I was like, well, when I, you were the first person I thought of when I was like, I'm going to cover these movies and, um, and us being of the same age, I think it's also, we, we will have that same perspective of like, you know, we were, we were kids and, and, you know, yeah. it even is scary at this point of how close we could have come to this in our own lifetimes as children and not having known it, that kind of echoes what our parents were probably going through in the early 1950s, if, um, You know, I know um, like my parents were both like little kids in the early 1950s. So, you know, when when you have the height of that particular part of the Cold War and they were.
0: Yeah, my my father, when he was in the military, he was in intelligence Mm -hmm. and he hasn't really told me anything specific because he still has that mindset. But he said there were times where something would come over the telex, basically, and he would want to call his parents just to say goodbye. So it was just like it, it was it was a little tense. Uh, the, the thing, though, is that this is a perspective that people born 10 years and later after us probably won't understand. Mm-hmm. I, a couple of years ago when the whole thing with, you know, we were afraid is North Korea going to launch a missile on us now and, you know, you know, blah, blah, blah. We're all scared about it. I was at work and I work with mostly people that are like 15 to 20 years mm-hmm. younger than me. And there was this girl uh who's not an idiot but i remember going well guys if there's a nuclear war we're done and she's like no no my uncle's going to get us and we're we're going to go you know deep into the woods and it's going to be okay and i'm like do you understand what a nuclear war actually is and she's like not really and i go okay Raise your hand here, and there's about five people. If you were ever scared of a nuclear war, not a single one of them have ever been scared of a nuclear war. They're scared of terrorist yeah. attacks, but they're not scared of nuclear war, and I just want them to hold on to that.
2: <laughs> yeah, because it's... it's uh, Oh, yeah, because I'm just trying to think of disaster movies where... Like, Deep Impact Elijah would literally outrun the tsunami at the end of that movie. And, like, you know, that, that's kind
0: of. And, like, a bunch of people die that didn't have to.
2: (laughs) And there's, there's a lot of, there is a lot of, like, if we only get to this one place, we will be safe in a lot of those types of movies. But, um, with the nuclear war, yeah, you're right. Unless you have. Unless you're like – I think the only time it works is like uh, a movie that – whose ending is like 10 times better than the entire movie, even though it's halfway decent, is Terminator 3. And that ending of Terminator 3 where like over there, Claire Danes' father is like, you know, yes, yeah, Skynet's here. And it's basically like the underground bunker at NORAD. And um he just sent them there because he knew that that was the one place they would be safe because this was going to happen and Judgment Day happens and you're watching this go off and they're watching this go off and then, you know, that's kind of like he takes the, the mic at the end and you're just like... You are right. You're like, you know, how did anybody survive that? And like, you know, you know, how, how did they get to 2029 and like, you know, in, in, in the original movie, and there's like a, a handful of people who are fighting for their lives and stuff. And you see, you see them pull away and it's just like this pock mark of explosions all over the planet. And, and that's mm-hmm. what, that's what I believe we were led to believe is what happens in the day after. Um, because, like i said they they always were like we're not going to tell you who fires first but they both fired at each other and so Mm -hmm. there is a soviet version of this somewhere you know there's there's the so there's like you know nikolai and, and 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 victor and um and boris and they are they're all trying to survive somewhere and like you know in the suburbs of Moscow or something, you know, like, and, 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 and it's, it's the same, same story. And it's, uh, and it is honestly scary. <laughs> and, um, and, and we, we have to remind ourselves of that, at least as, as us, you know, stepping out of the box here, us as a generation that was the last generation to really have that fear probably needs a reminder of it every once in a while, not in a we're all going to die sort of way, but as a, you know, Preparation sort of way in a you know in a perspective sort of way
0: and and you can find this on DVD yes. and Blu-ray uh there there's cuts of it mm-hmm. on YouTube the work print was taken down uh due to a copyright uh claim by Disney because Disney owns oh, ABC that's right, that's right. Uh, so uh, I was like why did and Disney do- oh yeah they own ABC suddenly I'm like Peter Griffin oh. um but uh you know, as, as a movie, mm-hmm. watch it, uh, because it's it, it, the performances are yeah. just amazing. The, the, and the script is really, I mean, it is a really
2: well-produced movie um, outside of its gimmick, if we can call it a gimmick, you know, and, and outside of its notoriety for what it was. Um, you know, it is it is a good two hours of television that, that is, is worth watching. So before I let you go, um, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you?
0: uh views of uh, not views from the long box fortress of uh there you can find all of my shows uh from crisis to crisis the superman and lois tapes uh which is about the new show superman and lois it's the title uh views from the long box the overlooked dark Knight, uh old episodes of shows like uh bailey's batman podcast and it all comes back to superman and there's hundreds of episodes to choose from so uh dive in have some fun. Uh, and thank you so much for You're having no
2: me on, problem. Really, this was I really enjoyed this. And-, and I'd like to thank Mike for coming on. Before I go, I want to highlight the song I featured at the beginning of this show. And what I'll go out with, which is 99 Luftballons by Nana. A song that is essentially about a nuclear war that is accidentally started when a person on watch mistakes somebody releasing balloons into the air as an attack. Uh, the song, of course I played the song that was in German, which I personally th- prefer to the English version, which is uh, called 99 Red balloons uh, but it was a it was a hit in the United States as a new wave hit for uh, for the group in 1984. And I'll be back at the end of August flying solo with a crop of movies that were all about another what-if scenario in the 1980s, just like we had the day after. And that is a Russian invasion. That's right, people. It's time for Red Dawn. It's time for America. It's time also to end the Cold War as well, because I will also be talking about... Rocky 4 not so much innovation but a very significant movie until then you can check me out on Facebook at pop culture for David don't forget to follow me on Twitter send me feedback and as always thanks for listening and take care This has been an episode of Fallen Walls, Open Curtains, a podcast miniseries brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. You can find show notes and other information about this mini-series and the blog Pop Culture Affidavit at popcultureaffidavit.com. You can find episodes of the show and other great shows at twotruefreaks.com. The Facebook group for this show is facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. You can follow me on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. All clips used are for informational and illustrative purposes only and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you very much for listening and come back next time for the next chapter in the end of the Cold War.
3: 99 Jahre Krieg, ließen keinen Platz für Sieger. Kriegsminister gibt's nicht mehr und auch keine Düsenflieger. Heute zieh ich meine Runden, seh die Welt in Trümmern liegen. Ich Luftballon gefunden Denk an dich und lass